This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 562 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show grappling legend Eric Paulson. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the martial arts, Jeet Kune Do, training under guru Dan Inosanto, working in the stunt profession, teaching the tactical community, combat submission wrestling, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Eric Paulson. Enjoy. Well, Eric, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Now, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Brea, California, which is Orange County, and I'm, I'm uh, by Fullerton, and by Disneyland. 
Well, I know it well. I was an Anaheim firefighter for a few years, so I was right on the borders there. Oh, man. Uh, I didn't know you were a firefighter. That's great. Firefighters, that's a good, that's a great job, but you guys get, you guys do a great service too. I mean, just with all the calls for the EMT work and the, not just fires, but what, what else you guys do as a firefighter? Um, I always describe it as if it doesn't involve arresting you or stopping you for speeding. That's pretty much what the fire does the rest. So they, they you know, the rescue, the EMS, the rope rescue, um, it's a jack of all trades, master of none kind of profession. I trained the Brea, uh, Brea Fire Department. Uh, they used to come to my gym a long time ago, and then I've had firefighters that I had that I've trained to help them get through their course and stuff. They've trained for you know uh, six months, and then they go go run their their uh, what, what's your uh, training called? Um, so we have the the minimum standards usually is the the fire academy, but then there's normally a test. I think it was the Biddle was was called when I tested for Anaheim, but there's one called the CPAT as well. Yeah, these guys always they're getting prepared, or and I get guys also that are that are training to go into the police academy. Uh, we had a fighter at a place I train at, and um, he's you know he's an amateur fighter. He's had some fights, but he's he's been training a lot and he said that he just, it wasn't really doing it for him. So he said, I want to do something that's going to give back to the world. And I said, what are you thinking? He goes, I'm really thinking about going in the military. And I'm like, wow, you know, I've never had anyone. I've, I've only had for students. I've only had like probably 12 total of guys that have gone, Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go in the military. And that's over a, the period of a long time. Usually it's guys when they, right when they get out of high school, they're not sure what they want to do if they want to, and they want to get maybe funding for college or, or an education. So a lot of times guys will go in that. We had one of our students, he was a wrestler. He was really great. And he went in uh, for four years. He's already out. And now he's back on our team again. I can't believe four years flew by that fast. It's amazing. You Another guy that tried to go in the Marines, but he ended up going in the in the Army, but he had back issues and he got a uh, honorable discharge. Uh, and then I got guys like brothers and things, his brothers that are actually in the Guard, doing the National Guard. I I have uh, other people that I train that are in the Coast Guard, uh, National Guard, Coast Guard. Uh, uh, I have guys that I train that are actually uh, Navy SEALs. Uh, and then I have uh, tons of military and police, uh, different different military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Uh, not the new one, though. Uh, what's the new one? Space Force? Yeah, I've done that there. Cyber grappling. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what, who those guys are yet. But. I don't understand it either, but I'm sure we'll find out eventually. <laughs> but, but, uh, it's good. You know, uh, this kid, he said, he asked me, he said, you know, I want to do something better to help the world. And so he said, I'm thinking about going in the army. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, if you're going to go in the army, cause you're a, you're a top athlete, you should look to the higher ups of it. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, my friend's a green beret. I'll put you in touch with him. And uh, this guy is highly decorated and he was an ATF agent. Let me hook you. So he hooked him up. Next thing you know, the guy walks in and fatigues. He was in the gym yesterday in fatigues. 
And I said, he goes, yeah, I'm starting my basic training. I had to go get, and they gave me my fatigues and he was already wearing them. He was so happy. He's, uh, we thought he could go to Camp Pendleton because that's right down the road. But uh, he's got to, I believe he's got to go somewhere else for special forces. He's uh, joined the SF uh, segment. Okay. Is he in Army though? Yes, Army okay. SF. So I think that's Fort Bragg, North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So he's got, I've got two guys uh, that, that were, they're combat vets and they were both deployed multiple, multiple times and they're both SF guys. Uh, and then I had a contract uh, for 10 years with the Canadian SF and I trained the, those guys for 10 straight years. And it was funny because at first I started teaching grappling and I thought, okay, they want to learn. He goes, can you teach me takedowns with one arm? I was like, takedowns with one arm. And he goes, yeah. Cause the other arm's either holding a shield or my helmet and we're going in a building and I might have to take someone down, but I have a gun in one hand and I need to take down with the other. So I showed him how to do uh, take the single legs and double legs with uh, only using one arm. It was interesting. Uh, that was one thing. And, but then I started training them and, and I started rolling with them and sparring with them. And it just, you know, you could see, I looked at their face and they're like, I could tell they they wanted more. And I go, you look a little disappointed. Is everything all right? And he goes, well, you have a pro fight team, right? And I go, I sure do. And he goes, do you think we could train with them? And I said, do you guys want to train with them? And yeah, sure enough, they started coming in and that was a big deal. We would do five days a week. First thing early in the morning from 9 a.m. to 9 to 11, we would do technique. We drill and do technique. And then, and then right after fight practice started at noon, and those guys would go in and spar with Hector Lombard, Babalu, Josh Barnett, Cub Swanson. All these guys were part of our fight, fight training. James Wilkes. Uh, James is from England. He won the Ultimate Fighter Show. Danny Suarez, he fought in the IFL. Cub Swanson, Jay Martinez, uh, Freddie George, uh, Ben Jones, Eric Kiahi. All these guys were all part of the, the fight team, and they they were uh, sparring five days a week with these, these combative guys, uh, which were the SF guys. And that contract was reoccurring for 10 years until they lost their funding. And then they kind of just like split. Now, how did that translate? I mean, I recognize a lot of those names, some incredible fighters. And actually, James was on the show, James Wilkes. Um, But, you know, obviously, when you think about the sport element of MMA versus, you know, an environment that you literally may have to kill, you know, there's there's a slight crossover there. How how did the the gym setting translate into their the lethal application when they were out doing what they were paid to do? Well, when it's lethal, it's done. There's a gun, and then there's a knife, and then they have the smoke, the flashbangs, and the hand grenades, whatever they use the the smoke and the so, uh, and then the the multitudes of different. Sometimes you're like a group of five, a group of six, a group of three, a group of two. Sometimes you're alone when you're clearing rooms and stuff. So all the empty hand for MMA is perfect for military. It's completely perfect. MMA is probably one of the best things you could train the military and you could train the police in because 
and the firefighters, because what's a real fight? A real fight is punching, kicking, clinching, takedown, ground and pound, and submission, if you could get it. So that's MMA. It's not jump on your back, pull guard, uh, try to do this. You, your buddies are kicking your head in, you know, and you don't force the ground. I mean, if you could stay on your feet and finish people, that, that's just as important. When guys attack you, they're not going to just run up to you, grab you, body lock you, and, or shoot a double and try to take you down. Although that happens, they're probably going to be striking at you, throwing things at you. And then if they can't hurt you with their hands or their feet or their elbows and their headbutts, they're going to be trying to clinch and get you to the floor, of course. So that's why uh, the clinch is so important. We, we train a ton of wrestling, weapon retention and wrestling. Wrestling is the biggest factor that, that uh, I think it should be compulsory for all teachers to learn how to wrestle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number of fights that break out in the classroom. I was in Australia, in Brisbane, and on the news for TV, they said um, they're making it compulsory for all teachers to learn how to wrestle. You know why? Because of the disobedient kids today. You know, like, it's so weird. The defiance of uh, authority is, you know, I watch people getting arrested by the police, and they sit and question everything about the police. They pull out their cameras. They they don't listen to one command. And then they, you know, they they act, you know, there are bad police, but there are good police, a lot of them. And, you know, that's a tough job. I wouldn't want to be a police officer today. That's a tough job. I mean, all my friends, I have a lot of friends in Seattle because I train the Washington State Police. And I put a tackle defense program together for them. And uh, they were the number one police force in America that were getting taken down and shot by their own weapons. Really? We attributed it to two things. The inmates were allowed to watch the UFC. They also were allowed to lift weights regularly. So they removed the weights and they removed the UFC. We put a tackle defense program together for the Washington State Police. And they implement and use it regularly to... to uh, prevent the takedown. And the biggest question is like, how often are you guys in a situation when there's a lethal weapon involved? And, and these guys are like, Oh, no, the answer is every time because it's yours. Yeah. It's strapped you, around your waist. Guys are getting taken down and shot with their own gun, you know? So that, that was a strategy. A lot of guys were using is they would kind of get the cop to chase them. And then the officer would go after him and boom, and they drop and shoot and hit a double. And these guys didn't, know, didn't even know how to sprawl. They had no defense against a, a double leg tackle. Yeah. Well, you see a lot of the, the video footage, you know, I mean, there's some incredible, you know, incredible police officers out there that are, you know, physically fit, strong, have great grappling skills and they walk the walk. But sadly, there are also a lot of examples where, you know, you have someone either not trained and or deconditioned where, Either sadly they're you know they're victimized or even murdered, and or they go to the only option they know, which is lethal force, because they don't have all those other options available to them. Uh, I believe what we teach is is specifically perfect for. Um, I've got a, a, a SWAT a SWAT uh, instructor. He's a DT. I've had DTs in Florida, uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma all over the place. 
Florida, all over uh, in Quantico. I went to Quantico. I was really amazed at Quantico because the uh, federal agents were all physically fit. They were all doing physical act- activities aside from the classroom, aside from. And it was funny because I walked in the FBI uh, Academy and they're on their side. And I looked against the wall and they had my bag. It's called a motion master. It's the ground bag. It's for transitions, right? And it's it's a ground and pound bag. It's called uh, the motion master. And, and Rev Gear sells it. So I created this bag after I got done fighting because someone said, what's your hardest part of your workout? And I said, the ground bag. You're tired. You just got done sparring a bunch of rounds. And now you're on that ground bag for 10 minutes and it kicks your butt because it's all based on transitions and hitting. And I watched, I did it. I, I created a bunch of drills and I put them on a seminar and I had house moms. I had monsters coming out of house moms. They're like hitting the bag as hard as they can. And they're like, and they're enraged. And I think they're imagining their husband's fate. Hammer <laughs> fist. But I watched, I watched all this rage come out of these people. I go, the ground and pound bag is the best bag for just a normal person. If you learn how to use it. And that's why I created the bag. And it was funny because it was based on transitions. So I put a bag, one of my bags at, at Higgin Machado school and I walked in and, and the bag was in the corner and this guy pulled it out and I go, Hey, that's a cool bag. And this guy goes, yeah, the problem with that bag is there's no arms on it. So you can't really work your submissions and your arm bars. I go, but that's not what that bag is for. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, that bag is used for positioning, transitions, and movement. And, it, and if you're going to fight, it's going to teach you how to hit the bag, ground and pound. And the guy goes, what do you mean transitions and movement and holds? And I said, well, uh, there's, there's basically on the average about 10, 10 different positions that you address. Uh, you either go around the bag, you go knee on belly, spinning, pop-ups, uh, or you go low and you go side control, Kazuri Keza, north and south, Kazuri Keza, backspin, pass the guard. You can use north and south, guard pass. So the whole thing, it's base, it's got two heads and then it's got two little nubs on both sides. So it's based on the infinity. The infinity emblem was the whole creation of the bag. It was constant motion, nonstop movement. You beat one head in and then you go to the other head, you beat it, and it's all based on movement. And uh, Chad, this thanks to Chad Stahelski, Chad's the one that put me on that bag. We had a heavy bag at the gym, and we used to tape the end up so we wouldn't punch the metal from the, you know, the hangers. Yeah. And he would tape them up, and then I'd do my transition on that bag. And I said, you know, this bag would be so much better if it was flatter and contoured like a human body. And he goes, what, what are you saying? And I go, well, he goes, it's good for moving. I go, but it's not realistic because it's round and you fall off it and it's too high. And all of a sudden, when I got done fighting, the first thing I did is I went to, I, I called Jeff Amata. You know, Jeff? Um, I, He actually just worked with the stunt team that I worked with. So I know of him. Yes, definitely. I called Jeff and I said, hey, do you have a company that makes any Kevlar products? And he said, Kevlar. And he goes, uh, yeah. He goes, what are you making? And I go, uh, I, I want to make a bag, but I want to make it out of Cordura or, or Kevlar so it doesn't rip. And he goes, well, let me introduce you to this lady. So I went to this lady and she made me, I drew out a bag, what I wanted. 
And uh, there wasn't even a name for it yet. And then all of a sudden, uh, I laid on the bag uh, that she 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 actually created the bag, but it was flat, and there weren't like little there wasn't space to get under the nubs. That's where your legs and your arms go. And so she, we had to revise it. But the first bag was a hundred pounds. It was super heavy. And I said, you know, this is going to be a hard one to to move and to travel with. So. So the prototype I gave to Sifu Larry Hartzell, and he kept it in his garage, and he beat it. He used to beat that thing up. And then we had a one at the Inasano Academy, and I think the prototype is still at the Academy. It's a gray, flat uh, Cordura bag that Jeff Jeff hooked me up with her with his lady. She was a lady that made those, you know, those blades that you that you go like this and they go. Oh yes, yeah, yes, I do. Anyway, she was manufacturing those but she did a she made a ton of stuff for the stunt guys all the stunt guys used to go to her to get their stuff made but she made the bag i created the bag and all of a sudden this bag that i created was the hardest work it's a 10 10 minute workout so this guy he used to watch my videos and he calls me and goes hey i want to meet with you i I like your stuff and he goes uh i want to get one of those bags from you so i gave him a bag or he bought a bag and he started using it. He goes, this thing's great. He goes, I want to get one of these for all my friends when we travel. And I was like, okay. So I made the bag uh, 60, I think 60 pounds. And so he would bought a bag for all of his friends when he traveled because he was doing security. And uh, I was like, what do you do? And he goes, well, I do security for my sister. And he goes, hey, let's meet. for." Uh, so I met him for dinner and we went out in Hollywood and I met him and we're just hanging out. And he, I, he said, yeah, I bought, I bought your bag for all my friends and we carry it with when we're on tour. And I go, what do you mean on tour? He goes, well, I do security for my sister. And I go, who's your sister? And he goes, well, you know what my last name is. And I go, um, Carrie. And he goes, yeah. And I, he goes, my sister's Mariah. And I had no idea. It was Mariah Carey's brother. His name's Morgan Carey. And, Anyways, he bought the. He uses that bag all the time for his friends. Love the bag. So next thing you know, I go to the FBI Academy, and here they have thirty of my bags stacked up against the wall. And I was like, "They got thirty of my bags." So the the head DT at the FBI at Quantico comes out and he goes, "Hello, Mister Paulson." And I go, "Wow, you guys have my bag." He goes, "Yeah." I go. He goes, he goes, that's how I know your name, because I I watch all your stuff, all your videos you put out. And I saw that bag, and that bag is perfect for police and military because it teaches you how to transition and move, and it's great for cuffing. And that was weird. I, I was really taken off like a surprise, but I was happy to to know that uh the military and the police, um, I love to train them the most because they're out in the street. I mean, they need what we do to defend themselves every day. I think MMA, catch wrestling, jujitsu, and wrestling is extremely important for for those guys. You know, uh, the wrestling is a is a big factor. Absolutely. And then the, the jujitsu for defense, for positional defense, how to get out of stuff and attacking. And then uh, I like the catch wrestling aspect because it's super aggressive for attacking but you know a lot of jujitsu guys attack too but that's not particular
particularly the style of jujitsu, the mentality. Let's talk about the mentality. The mentality is let them make a mistake and then capitalize on their mistake and take your time. Well, you don't have time. A guy, you know, you, you've got to defend your life or fight. Uh, the first thing you do, you're not going to de defend. You're going to attack. When you, when you train a guy with a gun to go to battle, you don't teach him how to dodge bullets. You teach him how to shoot. So the same idea that I think for, for the police and military is not just the defense and transitions, but also teach them, teach them all, teach them how to attack, teach them all the chokes, you know, teach them the face locks, the wrist locks, teach them the ankle locks, the toe holds, the knee bars, all the bent arm locks, arm bars, uh, stuff like that. Teach them all this stuff, even all the dirty stuff, all the finger locking, all the biting, because you're going to use it. Absolutely. Well, you want compliance too. I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. And I want to get to your martial arts journey in a, in a, in a moment because it's uh, it's incredible. But you know, I had my version of it from karate to taekwondo to boxing to muay thai to jujitsu, and each time being humbled and you know back to square one. Um, but when you understand that a law enforcement officer isn't you know, trying to get someone to tap, trying to knock someone out, but they've got to get them in a position where they, they then got to apply handcuffs. I mean, that, right. that, I mean, that blows my mind how that's even possible. So the, the compliance element, I think is incredible. If you can, if you can hurt someone to the point where they allow you to put those on, you know, that the rule book has to go out the, out the window a little bit because you're asking them to do something that's, that's so, so hard to do. Well, that's why I think some of the Aikido and Aiki Jiu-Jitsu works really well because you have to teach them how to use a wrist lock or a finger lock to put them down. But a lot of times they use their commands, right? Face down, face down, or, or yeah, face down, hands behind your back, cross your feet, stuff like that. Sit on your butt, sit on your butt, put your hands behind your back, cross your feet. So the, the, that's the compliant part. And, and then you're dealing with someone that says, no, I don't want to. I trained the Washington, no, the Wyoming police. Uh, yeah, the police department. I went out there for a, a weekend seminar and eight guys show up and they all have their fatigues and their combat boots. And they have a red belt on with their with their gun and their taser. And and I said, um, you guys, can we lose the belt? Uh you guys have belts on? Could you lose your belt? Because the belt buckle is going to kind of rip you. And can you guys take your shoes off, your boots off? And they go, well, this is, this is what we're in every day. And I said, if you really want to train what we, what we need to train, you should take your boots off. And they said, no, no, we're going to train in what we normally train in. And I go, okay. So by the end of the day, they all had scuffs, nicks. They had abrasions all over their face, all over their body, all their elbows. So I get a call from their commanding officer and he says, uh, hey, Eric, whatever you did today, that's not going to work. It's not going to cut it. I've got I've got seven shifts to be covered and I have eight guys. He goes, I got one guy out. These guys got to sometimes there's no one to relieve them. So these guys are going to be pulling doubles. And I said, well, I asked that they would please take off their belts and their gun, their red belts, uh, their guns. Uh, I would ask that they remove their belt buckles. I asked that they remove their boots and uh, any knives or anything on their hips. Just 
just take them out for training just so we would it's called understood you understand that someone's got a gun you understand they've got a knife but in order to train it realistically without getting hurt you gotta i mean i would never grapple with a knife on my hip but realistically of course of course you're gonna be in that situation but what happens a lot of times is these guys are rolling hard and there's a knife and it, all of a sudden it gouges or it cuts you or these guys are getting just completely beat up from the, the boots. We're going across each other's face. They're stepping on each other's fingers. I mean, uh, it, was, it was kind of crazy. So I, I think it's kind of uh, strange like that uh, when, when people – they need to learn that. But the whole thing was just trying to cuff. So uh, what I was leading up to was in Wyoming, the whole thing, they said, we want to show you our cuffing. And I said, okay, let, let's see it. Cause I want to see what you guys do. And they said, here's one, here's two, here's three, here's four. So uh, number one is the guy comes up, he wrist locks him, controls the elbow, puts a hand behind the back, goes, puts the hands together, commands the hands together controlling the, the back of the belt, crosses the arms, and then, he, and then he cuffs them. Number two is we had one guy come into the hand and then to the elbow, and the other guy hit a double leg, double leg tackle from the side. And then we turned them face up, and then you cross their feet and spin them, and then you hog tie their feet, and then you uh, cuff them. Three, I said, what do you guys do for three? And they go, oh, for three – you got two guys entering from the front and the third guy goes behind you and gets on his hands and knees. And then they just push you over the, just like in elementary school. I said, you guys actually use that? And they go, yeah, it works well. It's like, wow. I mean, that's funny. And then the last one is the swarm technique. Have you seen that one? It sounds like everyone just runs at them at the same time. Yeah. They all surround you and they go ready, go. And then they just all pounce on you. And that's number four. And I said, you know, the swarm technique's good. I go, but if the guy knows how to box a little bit, um, you guys are going to have a hard time with what you're doing. So they said, well, what do you mean? So, so I wasn't the villain. I put boxing gloves on one of the officers. And I go, here's all you're going to do. They're going to come and swarm you and arrest you. All I want you to do is back up and throw uppercuts. Ready, Go. And then they, they came in and he, he was like this. And then he puts his hands up they go, go. And they all try to grab him. And he was cutting everybody. Everyone comes out and they got bloody noses. And I said, see, that's just the problem. If someone knows how to fight a little bit, that's not a good thing. You got four on one. You guys, three guys have bloody noses. So they had to change their cuffing. So I changed the cuffing a little bit for that. Uh, so that that was one thing. You're right. The the cuffing or the compliancy is the the big factor there. Well, so speaking of you know all the, all the different elements of martial arts you've already just discussed, walk me through your journey from your first ever class in whichever discipline that was, all the way through to the the Jeet Kune Do, Danny Nosanto, that kind of era that you know that brought a lot of those arts together. When I was when I was uh, young. I played baseball, football, and hockey. I'm from Minnesota. It's just three things you normally do. So, you know, we used to go out and ride our bikes, go fishing. We go to the dam and go fishing. I mean, we used to get up early, take off all day, and then come back late at night. 
And it was no big deal. Your parents never, no phones, no pagers, no nothing. Parents never even knew you, where you were. We were doing death-defying death feats sometimes at the dam the on the river, uh, jumping in the water in the rapids and all that. We, I mean, being a daredevil, we, we always dared each other when we were little kids. So uh, playing sports was, was natural and normal and, and competitively. So baseball, hockey, and football. And uh, I was playing hockey one year, and, and this one year I was on this team, and, and I didn't really get to – sometimes I didn't get to start. And I'm going to blame it on my skates because uh, a lot of kids had newer skates, and I got a pair of used skates when I was little, and, and they weren't very uh, – the ankles weren't very supportive. And I, I guess I must have had weak ankles also. But uh, next thing you know, I was kind of like trying to skate on these crummy skates and I, all these guys are going flying by me. And uh, next thing you know, um, so I didn't get to play. So next thing, what I did, uh, I, we would play a game and then we would lose. And I go, well, and they go, oh, you guys suck today. Uh, you guys all lost. Um you guys are a bunch of losers because you guys, you guys, we need to change our practice and we need to change that. So the guy kept saying, Hey, you're a loser. And I was like, well, how am I a loser? I didn't even get to play. And this kid's like, you're a loser. Cause you're a loser. You know? And I was just like, you know, what? I'm on a team where I get to play a little bit, but <clears throat> my dad was more into it than I was. So I ended up, um, I remember I was halfway through the season and I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not really like it. Maybe I, maybe I didn't get along with my coach so well, or maybe, I, maybe I didn't get to play that much. I don't know. But next thing you know, uh, I'm in fourth grade. And my mom said, I said, Hey, Hey dad, guess what? And he goes, well, I go, I, I think I'm going to quit hockey. And I don't think I want to play hockey anymore. And he's like, but you're from Minnesota. I mean, we grow up playing hockey we go to all the hockey games yeah of course you're gonna play hockey and I go you know what and I ended up fighting more than I played hockey I always went after the guy and not the puck and uh I didn't even know that this is cross-checking with the stick I, I used to check people over the boards all the time and and I would end up in the penalty box regularly and they go you know what you're a goon and I didn't even know what a goon was the guy that beats everyone up but um Anyways, I just said, I don't want to do it. My mom said, hey, uh, at, at your uh, elementary school, there's a, there's a class you could take if you're interested. It's a winter sport. It's for winter sports. Uh, and it's judo. Why are you interested? And I go, mom, I'm already, you know, I play all these other sports. I don't think I need another sport. And she goes, I'll just go try it out. So I went in and the, and the teacher I met the teacher and he's like, and I, I noticed some of my friends were in the class and I was like, okay, cool. And he goes, Hey, uh, the first thing we're going to learn is how to break fall. Does anyone know why we need to learn how to break fall? And I go, me, choose me. And next thing you know, he goes, okay, you come up here. He goes, what's your name? I go, my name's Eric. And he goes, all right, we're going to show you all you kids, why you need to learn how to break fall. And he grabbed me and he hit me with a Tayatoshi and slammed me on the ground so hard. And I, and I didn't know how to break fall. So I landed flat back. I did a full blown flat back on the floor. 
without a without a breakfall. And I laid there, and it sounded like a box of um, cosmopolitan glass, martini glasses shattering when I hit the ground. It's like, and I laid there, and all of a sudden, all my friends go. They're all clapping and laughing. And he goes, okay. And I'm laying there going, oh, I can't breathe. So next thing you know, he, he goes, uh, hey, did you guys see that? And they're going, no, again, again. And he slammed me again like three times. And I, I was laying on the ground. I couldn't even get up. And that's when I realized that I was a uh, slapstick comic. Because I could make all my friends laugh by jumping in or getting slammed or doing something stupid. So when I was a little kid, I used to always make my friends laugh by doing stupid, crazy things. Eating things you shouldn't eat, uh, riding your, we used to jump out of trees into the river that were, there was rocks under the, you could see the rocks under the water. And my friend's like, I'm going to do a swan dive. And I go, I'll bet you. And he's like, how much? And I go, I'll bet you $2 you wouldn't do a swan dive. He did a Popeye dive out of the tree. And then he didn't come up for a while. We had to go get him. That was normal. That was just normal stuff. We used to go to McDonald's when we were little or burger. No, it was McDonald's. And we didn't have much money for the bus. We had enough for the bus, but not for food. So my friend would go, man, I'm hungry. Let's go get a burger. So we go get a burger and then he would eat half the burger. And then halfway through the burger, he would take the bun off and he'd grab a bunch of hair off his head and rip it off. And he'd put his hair in the burger. And then he'd go up to the front with a big wad of blonde hair in his burger. He'd go, look at this burger. It's full of hair. He goes, I can't eat this. I need a, a new one. And sometimes he would eat it so there's one bite left. But that was like normal when we were kids with just stuff like that. So uh, I wanted to compete. And so every time... You do the class at the end, you had a competition. Everyone had to go against each other. And that's how I got into the judo. I loved it. I did it two years in a row, and I loved it. And then uh, I got in a street fight in sixth grade. No, yeah, sixth grade, I got in a street fight. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I got my. I went to do a hip toss on somebody. This guy, Harold Goulet. And we went out. He was kind of a bully. So I said, oh, you want to bully people? Bully me. So I went to grab him and hip toss him. But we were out in the in the snow and ice. And he grabbed my hair and he just pulled me straight back and slammed my head into the ground. And uh, my head's in the snowbank. And I was like, well, shit, judo sucks. It doesn't even work. Man, I learned all this judo and I can't even use it in the street. And then we grabbed each other's hair and then we just started punching each other in the face. And then finally, we both gave up at the same time. And I go, that's it. Screw judo. I'm going to, I got to learn how to punch and kick. So, so in seventh grade, I went, no, it was sixth grade, sixth grade. I went to the movie theater with my friend, Jim Bolio. And I went to the movie theater to see Bruce Lee game of death was in the movie theater. That's how old I am. Game of Death, and we went to Game of Death, and I watched Bruce Lee do all his striking stuff, and I said, man, I got to learn that stuff. So I bought all of Bruce Lee's books, 
I found them at the B Dalton bookstore. They had all of the, they had Bruce Lee's fighting methods. They had the best martial arts books ever. It's such a shame that there's no more stores like that, that are just bookstores that have stuff like that. And all those books today are worth, I, all the antiques, they're, they're considered antiques and they're like $100, dollars $200 each. It's crazy. Yeah, I had all those books too, Dao, Jeet Kune Do, and all of them. There's a lot of st- a lot of the old books, a lot of the old karate books are worth a lot of money today. It's crazy. And, you know, one thing I have to say, my grandma was a teacher, and she introduced the book. She introduced a program called the Red Program, and it was about reading books. Get a book in everyone's hand. She had book drives all the time. Uh, my my grandfather was a farmer and she was a school teacher. So she said, Eric, there's one thing that will make you smarter every day. And if you do it, and I go, well, what's that? And she goes, read, open a book and read. And so here's the problem. Kids just sit on their phones, you know, and do they read books? Not really. They don't read stuff. They read texts. You know, and they play games, lots of games. You know, that's why everyone, every kid is computer savvy, but um, a lot of kids do not read books. So history, you know, a lot of history kind of disappears. You know, it's a 10-year rule. Every new generation that comes out, I, I can teach all the Shudo stuff to people today, and they'll go, wow, that's amazing. Well, man, I was teaching that in the 90s. And I, you wait, you skip a, a generation and start teaching all the old stuff again. And everyone, nobody learned it. Nobody learned it. It's all new stuff. Yeah, we did. Uh, Dan Severn, who's on the show, came and did a, a seminar recently. And, you know, having done jujitsu for a little while now, on and off, um, it, it was just crazy. Like the old, just regular wrestling was new to everyone, you know, and just the, the bullying and, you know, and the, like you said, not, not dirty tactics, but the, the non-sporting move, just because it's not allowed on a mat doesn't mean it's not applicable, especially in, in real world application. Res- wrestling, boxing and wrestling are America's and England's real martial arts. Uh, England's martial arts where it was catch wrestling and boxing. Pugilism. Same with America, boxing and wrestling. Those are the two. You know, I remember I was training at Tim Tackett's garage, and uh, he was teaching JKD in his garage in Redlands, California. And he had snipers coming in. He had uh, ex-military guys coming. So the Wednesday night JKD group was amazing because it was all experimental. Here's all this new these new martial arts. Let's see if they're good. Tim Tackett's theory, he said, I don't care what you know. The bottom line is when you get in trouble, can you knock someone's dick in the dirt? That's what he said. I was like, wow, I'll remember that. <laughs> it's wise words. And then the other thing he had that, that was, he taught a lot of great stuff, the mentality. Uh, he said, you know, every time you're going to do something, if you're going to punch, you're going to elbow, you're going to knee, you're going to headbutt. He said, especially in the street, you need to have the fuck you mentality. And I was like, uh, what do you mean? He goes, every time, go ahead. He goes, swear at the pad when you're hitting it. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, yeah, that does work. 
you know, because it, it kind of pulls the anger. Uh, a lot of people are super nice until they, they get super mad or angry. And I think that part, sometimes it's hard to switch on that adrenal burger. You know, it was what Bruce Lee called it, the adrenal burger, the adrenaline. How do you kick your adrenaline in? And it's the, it's really the, the FU mentality. That's what it is. It's the, the mentality of just being Mr. Nice guy. And then all of a sudden go to, Holy crap, that guy's a caged animal. Yeah, you know, I, you, I struggle with that when I competed. Yeah. I remember the first, first time I did a Taekwondo tournament, a friend of mine and I were in the same bout and he, whooped my ass <laughs> totally kicked my ass and it was after that that i realized okay there's there's another side that yeah we tip tap in class but when it comes to actually being on the mat that you have to you, you have to channel that and i think for some people it's harder than others and i would like to think i'm that nice guy that has to really work at getting pissed off and has to visualize things that make him angry that's that's the hard part especially for fighting too you know you uh you you have to be mean. You don't have to be mean by nature, but you have to know what meanness is. You you have to know what it's like to just like go deep and and learn how to hurt people, like manipulation and control, and whether it's through striking or or punching. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm a, just a peaceful person, and I like to just put people to sleep." Well, great, that's wonderful, but not everyone's an expert at the choke, or not everyone can get to the choke. So that's why why I think uh, uh, submissions, like they call jujitsu the the gentle art, and they call uh, catrassing the violent the violent art or the sport of cringe, because some of the stuff, the twists, and the cranks, and the rips. That's why um, CSW Combat Submission Wrestling is a compilation and mixture of all of that, and uh, our theory is uh, crank rip and tear by any means because guess what we're not just guys competing in a grappling tournament we got fighters we've got uh, someone so hey what what does csw stand for i go well we're catch wrestlers that fight so all our guys know submission they all know how to wrestle they all learn how to strike and we spar and we grapple all the time and then we also fight we fight in different tournaments kickboxing boxing um, MMA, grappling tournaments, no-gi tournaments, catch wrestling tournaments. Some of our guys wrestle, some of them do judo, a little bit of sambo. That's important. That whole aspect is, is the, the, the overall aspect of fighting is kind of MMA. It's not just secluded to jujitsu. When I look at, you know, the, the Bruce Lee philosophy, the teachings, you know, the actual you know, textbooks that he left us. Um, it's funny now when you look at MMA, I think of, you know, his philosophy of Jeet Kune Do. When I look, think of CrossFit, for example, I look at the way he was conditioning. Remember, there was one like kind of 10 exercise cycle that he would go one after the other after the other, and it looked the same as, you know, some of the wads that you would see today. So what was, you know, what was your evolution of finding that kind of mixed martial arts and, and the training side of that for you personally? So, like I said, I got that street fight, which switched my mind on immediately. I have to study. So I started reading Bruce Lee's books. So I was like really reading and reading. And, books. and there was a 
Taekwondo school. It was called Taekwondo, but it was all sport karate. It was all sparring. I said, do you guys do forms? And they go, only when we have to. And I was like, what do you mean? And they go, the only time you learn a form is if you have to test for a belt. He said, but don't be, don't worry about your belt. Worry about your ability to perform. And he said, that's why we spar all the time. So we used to spar. Uh, and then, then my teacher, um, we sparred so much. He said, you know what you should do? You should try to develop your hands. So I got into boxing in, in eighth grade. I got into boxing. So fourth grade, judo, sixth grade, taekwondo, sport, karate, eighth grade, boxing, uh, ninth grade, Aiki jujitsu. And then 10th grade, uh, I continued. I was a gymnast. I started gymnastics in eighth grade because I wanted a strong, flexible body. So, and it was a, and it was a personal sport. Judo is a personal sport. Karate is a personal sport. There was what, there wasn't, nothing was based on a team effort. So if you lost, it's because you lost, not because the team lost. And I like that aspect uh, because you develop yourself. That was it. The development of yourself. And so that's why I thought it was really good to get into individual sports like gymnastics or wrestling uh, and so, uh, when I got into, so I started fighting full contact karate right when it came out and it was like six kicks above or eight kicks above the waist. And then, then it was uh, pretty much a little bit of kicking, but mostly boxing. So that's why golden gloves boxing was so important. My dad threw me into boxing. He goes, you want to learn a real martial art? You need to box. So I got into boxing. I remember coming home with black eyes and uh, concussions. Never, ever to this day have I been knocked out. Never. Never knocked out, never choked out either. Never choked out, never knocked out. And I've had tons and tons of rolling and tons and tons of sparring and fights. Never been knocked out from fighting. Never been Might have one time been knocked out by some Jägermeister, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I have too, and I was 18 in a ski resort, so I can remember it clearly. <laughs> Did you puke? Oh, God, I covered the whole hotel room. It was all black. It was disgusting. Jägermeister. <laughs> that's an amazing... Uh, I thought Jäger was the best, and then I just... Uh, it just erases your mind. Yeah, actually, I was 16. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, we're in England now. The legal age was 18, but I was with my friend's parents, and we won this little Skittles competition. And so we'd been drinking beer, and then they gave us a Jaeger as the winning thing. And I was, God, I was probably God, 130 pounds soaking wet. Yeah, so well, it just put me on my ass. Well, only one or two shots? It was probably only one. It was probably local local Jägermeister, like God knows how strong it was, but uh, it was enough to, to ruin my day, that's for sure. Well, Chad Chad ruined one of our friends. Uh, I was a bartender and one of our friends came in from Seattle. He was uh, under Dan and Asano and he comes in and he goes, let's get, let's get our friend Chris, let's get him some Jäger. So he gave Chris a bunch of Jaeger. And I remember later on, I go, Hey, how are you guys doing? He goes, Oh boy, Chris is not good. I go, Chad, you were throwing Jaeger down his throat the whole night and he doesn't even drink Jaeger. It's crazy. Uh, 
It's a good and a bad one. Anyways, moderation. Next, um, uh, boxing and Aikido, full contact karate. I met Rick Fay when I was uh, getting ready for my black belt in Taekwondo. I had another instructor. It was a fight school. And I was thinking about uh, some other arts, but I, I would read all the different books of all the different art. And I try, I was a technician, so I would try all this stuff on my friends. I had a gym in my garage. I always had a gym in my garage. I had a heavy bag and mats and Makawara and uh, kick. I had a kick uh, bag on the pole that we used to just kick to develop my shins. And uh, uh, I, I created a uh, rope pulley to do the split. So I, I was super flexible and I put my foot in the air and I hold the, and it was just a, a wheel. Uh, so the rope went around it. And then I would hold that and I would just rotate from split to split. That thing was so good. I have one at my school now, but nobody knows how to use it. It's it's the most underused, but the best flexibility piece of equipment that's out there right now. You hang a rope on a pulley, you put a handle on one side, and then you put a loop, which I use like a seatbelt. And and I put your my put, put my leg in that and I do the splits and stuff on that. Anyways, uh, I used to have all that stuff in my house. And then next thing you know, I, um, I, I met Rick Fay. He came into my Taekwondo school. And Rick Fay is under Dan and Asano. He's a senior full instructor. And Rick Fay was teaching at my karate school. And these guys, they had to go buy dowel rods. And I walked in and he was teaching them all these uh, weapon, like figure eights, X's all the X series and then uh, the six count with the, with the sticks and uh, it's called heaven six, heaven standard earth. And I go, Oh, that's cool. I just don't, I'm not really into weapons. So, and then I saw him do some empty hand stuff and he started with the footwork and I go, Oh, that guy's definitely a boxer. Cause there's no way that he does all that footwork without, you know, being a boxer. He looked just like a boxer. And then he had five different footwork drills that he did. I still remember this day. And then uh, he he ended up hitting the pads. And then all of a sudden he started doing some trapping. And then he started doing destructions like guntings on the on the guy's arms. And then entries into throws. And then on the ground he taught a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, but he was so fluid and he had such good energy about him. And I immediately got his card and I said, where, where do you teach? What exactly are you teaching? He goes, Oh, it's Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do. And I said, uh, did you train? You learned who, where did you learn that? And he goes, well, Dan and Asano is my teacher. I go, Dan and Asano is your teacher. I go, man, he's in Bruce Lee's books. And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, I'd like to learn more. So I went to a school, started going to a school. When I graduated high school, I ended up going there from, 1982 to 1985, almost 86. And then I, in 19, I went to from spring break in high school. When I graduated high school, I, I went to Florida and I came back and I go, I'm moving to California. I love it out there. So I moved to Palm Desert. And someone said, Why would you go to Palm Desert? Why don't you just go to LA? And I go, I got to go to Palm Desert because uh, I got to get my culture shock over. Because I was a, a Midwestern boy from Minnesota, 
And I was super naive. And I thought the word gullible was written on the ceiling. I, I didn't know. It wasn't. Someone told me it was, and I, I believed him. Anyways, uh, next thing you know, I ended up in um, Palm Desert. I was in Palm Desert for five years. And I was, I was doing Taekwondo and boxing out there. And I had mats in my garage, and I was grappling. We had our garage gym. And then next thing you know, I, I started going and driving to L.A. to the Jet Center for private lessons. I would do uh, trade with Benny the Jet. And then and then I came, went by, drove by the Inasano Academy to see what was going on. And there was a shoot wrestling seminar in 1988. But, but uh, from 86, uh, I was also driving and training in Tim Tackett's garage. And Tim Tackett said in 1986, he said, hey, there's a new art coming out. And these guys, they're really tough and they have an open challenge. and They'll fight anybody in the world to prove how great their art is. And I go, well, what's it called? And he goes, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You should learn it. He goes, um, why don't you go down there and, and learn a couple things and then just come back and show us a couple things and tell us why it's different than, than all the other arts. And I, my first private lesson was with Horian, Master Horian Gracie. And it was a self-defense private. And then we did a little, little bit of stuff on the ground. I could not believe how nice and just how, how kind and gentle his, uh, just his demeanor was. And then he showed me all this cool stuff and self-defense, asked me what I would do if he grabbed me. Uh, grab my shirt. It was all self-defense scenarios. And then, and then uh, we did a couple of techniques on the ground, how to uh, about positioning and escaping and controlling people. And then uh, next thing you know, we, we uh, shook hands. He gave me a hug. He goes, I can't wait to see you next time. He gave me a hug and I left. I go, that was amazing. And it was just, you know, his warmth, his demeanor. He introduced me to his family, his Kids, Halleck and, and uh, Henner and Huron and Rose were all in the living room. They were little kids watching TV. So I met all them. He brought me in his house and introduced me and showed me all about Gracie Jiu-Jitsu heritage and about his dad, how he fought. And he had an open challenge. He tried to fight Joe Lewis and all this stuff. Uh, amazing. And, and he showed me that he showed me before the UFC what his ideals were for the UFC. His ideals for the UFC were to uh, bring a cage in on a crane and drop it down and bolt it in and then have the fighters walk in. And I was like, why don't you just bolt it down and keep it bolted down? <laughs> you walk in and then shut the door. You lose the crane part. And then yeah, lose the crane. But it was, it was kind of cool. The idea with the crane, though, how they just dropped it down, they locked it in and then boom, you're in. The idea was cool, but anyways, he changed it, and then he hooked up with Art Davies and and Kathy Kidd, and he got he got involved into uh, and, and got that, and you know they they grabbed a bunch of opponents uh, all from all different martial arts, and then they had that open challenge. But that's how I got involved in Gracie Jiu Jitsu. It was nineteen eighty six. In nineteen eighty eight, I did my first Shudo seminar. 
I was also training, uh, doing privates, not privates. I was driving in and doing seminars at the Inasano Academy. I did an Nike jiu-jitsu seminar with Bernie Lau. He was a Nike jiu-jitsu police officer in Seattle. And then I did another seminar with Burt Richardson. It was on Kali and dancing and the disguise of all the all the dancing movements and the Kambangan and all this stuff, how they how the ancient cultures used to disguise their fighting through dance. It's like the Irish, how that, you know, the Irish dance, you know why they, they did learn that, right? No, I don't. Because the uh, British, the English soldiers would walk by and look in the windows and they wouldn't move their upper body. They would only be moving their feet. Because if they saw their upper body moving, they go, hey, these guys are dancing. So uh, it was forbidden. So they would just move their feet and they wouldn't move their upper body. And that's where the uh, Irish dance came from. The river dancing. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Pretty. I, I always ask, I go, how come they don't move their upper body? And they go, oh, they weren't allowed. It was hidden and forbidden. So interesting. But the dance is a kambangan or it's a lot of the movements are hidden through jurus, which are kind of forms. Uh, Lankas, Jurus, and all these, they're like karate katas or forms. They're, uh, some of the stuff is hidden. Well, it was amazing. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. It was, it was amazing listening to uh, Guru Inosanto when I went to the seminar here in Jacksonville. That was about three years ago now. But the passion and just the knowledge, the, the, the heritage and the history of, especially obviously the, the, the Filipino, um, you know, culture and upbringing and, and, and origin of, of the martial arts was fascinating. Mean, I could listen to him for, for hours, hours and hours and hours. He was absolutely engaging. A lot of people, a lot of people actually ask, is it possible that Guru Dan just demos and talks uh, for, for a seminar? I said, so you guys don't do anything? And they go, no, we just want to watch him and listen to him. Absolutely. And he's so humble. He goes, oh, people don't want they, they I said, you have no idea. You are, you are the martial arts historian. You know everything about martial arts, about all these different arts that nobody knows about. Nobody's going to ever have that much knowledge. He's always training with new people. He gets to a high level. And then he's off to another art as he continues with each teacher. Amazing. Even jujitsu, he's had he got he got cauliflower ears. Guru Dan and Asano got cauliflower ears at sixty five years old. And every time on the airplane, I go, "What's that?" He goes, "Oh, it's my privates." And I go, "Well, how many are you up to right now?" He goes, "I'm up to nine hundred and sixty five private lessons." And he had it all documented, written down, and he had a chart with colors. So one color was his teaching, another green color. Yellow was teaching. Green was training and then and then it was green yellow green and then uh blue was uh like relaxing or massage or whatever and and he had this document every day he he continued his whole life was documented for a long time uh, that way and he would look at his charts he goes boy look at it. i'm teaching way more than i'm training that's not good and so he would change, he had to change stuff. He would just look at the colors and he could tell, hey, well, I'm not getting enough massage or relaxation or downtime. 
and stuff like that. So it's good. He, he had just documents of all of that, which to me was completely amazing. And I was fortunate that I got to start training there. Uh, I started training at the Inasana Academy officially. I uh, started in 1988. And I started Shudo. And I did the Silat, Penchak Silat with Pendecker Paul Dutois. I took uh, Bert Richardson was our phase one teacher. I was happy when I got invited to the to Guru Dan's class, and he had phase one, phase two, phase three. Guru taught a, a, a phase class, which it was a mixture, a compilation of Thai boxing. It was more, um, it was more like boxing, savat, trapping, and then there was a Kali class that was separate, and then there was a Thai boxing class. He separated that, and that was a separate class. So he had the Junfong kickboxing, trapping, and grappling which is JKD. And then uh, it was just really cool because there were so many different arts you could learn there. It was almost like a college. Well, I heard you talking as well about um, competing. And what was interesting is that you, you're talking about fighting in Japan, but also it sounded like you touched on the fact that there were elements of pride that may have been predetermined who was going to win. And I'd never kind of got that from Pride as, as an audience member. So if you wouldn't mind, talk to me about your competitive element, because I lived in Japan for a while myself too. And then and then what you saw kind of behind the scenes of early MMA. Okay. Well, so when I started training Shudo in 1988, I was also training under Hickson. Uh, and what I did is I did a seminar. I was training with Hoisin Horian. And then I started training with Hickson because Hickson was teaching just ground, straight ground stuff. I didn't have to learn all the self-defense, but the, I'm glad, I'm glad everything worked out the way it was supposed to. I'm glad I learned the self-defense stuff because a lot of guys today never learned it. A lot of guys never got the, the self-defense stuff with the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They got all the ground stuff. They got all, all the sports stuff, but they didn't get this, the, the traditional uh, self-defense stuff. So after I, I met with Hickson, I, I did a private and we hit the ground. And then unfortunately at the time, uh, Hoist actually said, Hey Eric, uh, I heard you took a private with my brother the other day. I go, yeah, it was great. He goes, did you like it? I go, yeah. He goes, and what do you think? And I go, I thought it was great. Maybe I could go over there. Maybe I could come here on Tuesdays and go there on Thursdays. And he goes, well, you're going to kind of have to make a, going to kind of have to make a choice. And I go, what do you mean? That's your brother. Why can't I train with both you guys? And he goes, well, he goes, you can't play on two football teams at once. And I go, what do you mean? It's Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And, and uh, so they were segregating uh, and separating and they're just being separate. So I, I just said, Hey, well, I, I saw, I did my first shooto seminar in 1988. Then in 19, uh, sorry. Then, then I started training with Hickson and I said, I want to get the ground down and mix it with the shooto stuff. So I could go fight in Japan. I want to fight. Cause I was, a, I was always an athlete and a sport. I was always into to sports and I always wanted to, the only way to get better is to, to put it on the line. And this is before anyone wanted to fight. Nobody wanted to fight. It was 1988, 99, 89. And I said, I want to fight. So I started training with Hickson. 
in the ground, just mostly the ground. And then he changed from, I went from his garage. I started training him in his garage. And then I started training with him at on Pico Boulevard in Santa Monica at that school. And uh, at that time, I was training that and Shudo back and forth. I was doing both together. And I was doing Thai boxing and boxing. Uh, I had all these different, I had a boxing coach. I had a rest, uh, I didn't have a wrestling coach yet. Thai boxing coach, Savat coach. And then I had a team of guys from the Shudo that were all preparing for, for competition. And then I was going to jujitsu to get, to get my ground better uh, secretly. And then I also was still doing gymnastics. There's a couple of gymnastics schools around. I go train a little bit. So I made sure I could still tumble. And then uh, next thing you know, Yuri Nakamura in 91 said, would you be interested to fight? And I said, yes. So I put a demo tape together and I sent it to Japan to Satoru Sayama. And I said, um, I'm one of Yuri Nakamura's fighters or students. And I would like to fight in Japan uh, if you would have me. So they set it up with Chad, Chad and I, uh, Yuri goes, uh, I found a guy, he's going to be your assistant. And you two are going to go to fight in Japan. I go, who? And he goes, Chad, I go, Chad doesn't work the ground. He's, he just loves the kickboxing. But J Chad was a Japanese jujitsu black belt. So he was really good at throwing. I just uh, uh, helped him with his ground and his striking got better than everyone. So I asked Chad to help me with my striking on the side. And then, and then uh, all my grappling I was doing, and I said, I'll oh, help you get your grappling better if you help me get my striking better. And then what happened is Chad, um, he tore his, he fought in Japan. Him and I fought in Japan together in, 19, in the beginning in 1993. And then the first UFC was, uh, I think, in August of 1983. So we fought before the first UFC together in Japan. And then Chad got hurt. He, I think he fought. I only fought in France. He fought a couple of fights, and then he fought uh, in Japan. And he got hurt. And then he's like, you know. And, and one time we were grappling, and he put a hook in. He put a leg in, and he only one hook and he spun to my back. He went for an ankle lock um, with one hook in and he could, cause I wouldn't let his other hook in to take my back to choke me. So I took, so he went for an ankle lock and I sprawled and his knee broke sideways. Ripped. I ripped his knee by, it was by accident. I didn't do it on purpose. It wasn't malicious. He goes, my knee just ripped. And he goes, Call 911 to Damon. And then he bit my leg. Oh, really? <laughs> so much pain. He bit my leg. And I I had like, I put my finger in his mouth like this. And, and I was going like this on his, I was eye gouging him and ripping his mouth because he was biting my leg so hard. He ripped his leg. I ripped his leg, not on purpose. But that was act, actually after. I ripped his elbow because one time I, I got him in a head and arm and it's called a pillow V arm lock where you go around the head and then you put the arm under. So I had the head and arm and I started to pull his head up. And as I'm pulling his head up, he goes, Oh, I go, Chad, it's on. I I've got it. The lock is on just tap. And he goes, I'm not tapping. That's not on. 
And I, I slid my hip back and I started lifting his head a little. He goes, that's not on. I'm not tapping. I go, Chad, the lock is on. Just tap. He goes, it's not on. So I slid my, my hip back a little more and started lifting his head up. Then I go, Chad, it's on tap. He goes, I'm not tapping. I go, all right. And it ripped his elbow like a sheet of paper. So we were running back and forth to the hospital regularly because he was always getting hurt. And I understand why he's like, you know what? My body's getting ripped and broken apart. There's no money. We're poor. We're going to be ugly. We're going to be poor. There's no money. We're beat up. Our bodies are beat up. He goes, get out of fighting. Quit fighting and follow me. Follow me and we'll, we'll uh, start doing stunts and we'll become, we'll keep our, we'll keep our young, uh, good looks. And then, and then we won't have any injuries and then we'll make money and we'll be rich and good looking. <laughs> That's what he said. I've been doing stunts for a while now. I'm not rich or good looking. So how did that work no. out for you? <laughs> Don't be humble. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about that. And so, so talk to me about the entry into the stunt world. Cause I, I think some of the guys that were in the team that you were a part of, are my bosses now at Action Horizons. Um, so, yeah, but then you were doing the films that I was watching as a young man, including Bloodsport, which um, is an interesting perspective because there you were actually a competitive martial artist um, doing a film about, you know, a, a kumite that may or not have actually happened in real life. Martial arts. arts. Yeah. Um, so, so I was a bartender. The whole time I was training, I was a bartender. And um, I started fighting in 93. But the stunts and bartending is what segued me into fighting. I, it was like, it just set it up. So I was, a, I was a, a school professor at College of the Desert in Palm Desert, uh, California. And I was teaching, I was a PE teacher there. And they said, you're going to continue your education or are you going to? And I said, I don't know. I'm, uh, I really love martial arts and I'm doing it full time. And uh, I, I, I think I might have an opportunity to, to actually fight, uh, compete uh, professionally in martial arts. So I left, that's when I left Palm Desert and I moved to LA to train I started training full time with Yuri Nakamura and uh, the Gracies at that time, Hickson. And then later on in 94, I got kicked out of Hickson's because I fought in a bare knuckle fight. Uh, Chad and, so so um, Chad and I originally went up for this role. It, it was for a commercial. And they saw this is after Chad and I did Baywatch. I originally, while well, I was a bartender, in 1990, I got asked if I wanted to go to uh, Venezuela to work on um, American Ninja Five, uh, a blockbuster. That was that that was a huge blockbuster. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was with David Bradley. David Bradley was the lead, and I was his assistant. And Spike Silver and Hubie Kearns, God rest his soul, and uh, some of these stunt guys are all there, and. And uh, I was just basically helping David out. And then I started doing uh, stunt, a little bit of stunts and then uh, some fight scenes. I, I was a, one of the, I was a green, blue, I, the only blue, green, green ninja on the set. But uh, Dave threw me and I went flying 
I, I took the fall and I landed and dislocated my shoulder. But I was working with Tadashi Yamashita, James Liu, uh, Spike. You know Spike Silver? I do not know. Spike was, at the time, he was Mel Gibson's stunt double. And Hubie Kearns, he's, man, he was great. Anyways, there was a lot of guys. But uh, that was my beginning. And then I got back to the academy. This is this is in the beginning. And Chad and Damon said, hey, we kind of want to do the same thing. So Chad and Damon started doing stunts on Sundays or Saturdays or Sundays. They'd get together and we'd all jump off buildings and we would film because Chad was going to USC for film school and Damon, Chad and I were, were best friends. So we would, we would uh, do uh, fight scenes uh, and film a little bit of it. We would jump off the, the roof of the Academy because Chad bought a, a three inch crash mat. And, and I remember I drove up in the, it was like 9am the crash mat sitting in front of the door pushed up against the, the flat brick wall and the ceiling was like 15 feet up. And he goes, do you have coffee this morning? I go, no. He goes, you don't need coffee. Come up here. So I got up there and he goes, watch this. We're going to do a flat back. So I go, oh, like this? And I just stood on the edge and I just went, Meow. and I hit a flat back. Uh, isn't that called a suicide also? Yes, I think so. Okay. And then, uh, so... Uh, I said, what else? And he goes, uh, okay, well, you have a header. You go, and then you tuck at the last second. Just tuck. You land on your back, header. And then, uh, okay, no problem. He goes, wow. I go, it's timing. I go, I, I told you I was a gymnast, and I was really good on the trampoline. So my timing on on break fall, on falling was obviously really good because of that. The trampoline was a secret. And then uh, the last was a face-off. You, you fall and then you twist, half twist, right? Yep. You know, it's called face-off. So you have a header, a face-off, and then suicide. What else? Those are the only ones that I, I, I've done a header a few times and then the face-off. I did a, a pirate stunt show and that was the one I normally did for that. It was like a 18 foot four. Like you jump and you kick, 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 and you do a flat. Yeah, was it like out. a sit fall? Is that what they call that one? Okay, I think okay. so, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not known for my aerial work, so I was very kind of uh, you know white belt one tag when it came to falls. I think because of gymnastics, it made me super ballsy. So like Chad bought a mini tramp, and I ran and I hit a brani right off the bat, and I hit a front tuck, and then I did a half twist and then a back tuck, and he was like, "What did you learn how to do that?" And I go, "I was a gymnast." So he goes, "Oh." Went to the gymnastics studio, and then uh, all of a sudden, I jumped up on the high bar, and I did a high bar routine. And front hip circle, back hip circle, pitch. I didn't do a giant, but I pitched out, and I hit a, did a flyaway. And then Chad's like, he was so mad. He's like, damn, what did you learn how to do that? And I, go, I was a gymnast. And so, hey, Chad, you want to go do gymnastics uh, next week? He goes, no, I'm busy. Yeah. You're busy getting private lessons from your gymnastics coach. Let's <laughs> try and get and better I than you. For one month. I didn't see Chad for a month. And I was like, Chad, what have you been doing? I, I don't see you because we always secretly did stuff. Like I would sneak off after shootout and guys would go eat and I'd sneak off and go train at Hickson's. I never told anybody. I would sneak off, go learn jujitsu. And then when I go to jujitsu, they'd always go, 
a couple guys would keep asking me about the Inasano Academy. And I said, I don't want to talk because I want to be respectful. And they get really mad if you talk about any other martial arts here. If you don't just talk about jujitsu, they'll kick you out of here. Can you believe that? I remember Limon, Limon this guy goes, hey, Eric, do you still do Sabat and Kali and Silat and and the Shudo stuff at the Inasano Academy? And I remember Limon, Luis Herrera, he goes, it's only jujitsu here. If you don't speak, if you only, if you don't only just talk about jujitsu, you could leave. And I was like, I told you, dummy, we're going to get in trouble. Ask me later. Don't ask me while we're on the mat rolling around. And, and so, but I always sent them students, always sent students from the Inasano Academy. Cause guys are like, Hey, I heard you're training with the graces. I go, yeah, I am. And they go, Oh, we're, we're interested. I go, well, I'm training at Hickson's right now. If you're interested to come over. And then I fought in a bare knuckle fight and I got kicked out of Hickson's cause all the students were talking. And next thing you know, uh, I didn't have jujitsu for about a year and a half. And, and uh, I was a bartender and, and Higgin Machado came to my bar and he said, Hey, how's your jujitsu coming along? And I go, it's non-existent. He goes, what do you mean? I go, I lost all my training partners. He goes, why? And I go, well, I got asked to leave Hickson's school. He goes, why? And I go, cause I fought in a stupid bare knuckle fight after I got approval, after I got permission I got permission to do it. And then I will come back and they say, oh, you can't train with us anymore. I was like, but you said I, I could do it. And I even said I would take a bye if I had to fight Enzo. I only went up for the commercial. I wasn't even planning on fighting in that fight. I fought two fights back to back. I got my hair pulled for 18 minutes on national TV. Didn't even fight Henzo. Henzo and I talked after the fight. Everything was cool. I come back and uh, I get kicked out of the school. I was so hurt because my friends were there, but, but more than that, I admired, well, I enjoyed training with the Gracies. It was a big deal to me, you know, at that time, especially. And then, and then uh, I idolized Hickson so much that I had got him stunt work. I always asked, try to get him movie work. I tried to get him in the movies, get him stunts, get him commercials, always sending stuff. Uh, that and then also uh, helped helped uh, Guru, with Guru Dan signing uh, and writing a nice letter so he could stay in the country for his green card, uh, which was great. Uh, and I'm glad that he got to stay. And then and then the other was uh, getting him fights in Japan. But I you know I was trying to help him get it because I I had a foot in with the stunts uh, in Hollywood. And every time we get auditions and stuff, or we would hear of movies, I would send stuff his way, you know, and, and then the fighting, I was always asking him uh, Hickson at, at that time, Hey, would you like to fight in Japan? And they, they gave him two offers uh, each year. First was a low offer. Second was a low, a low offer. So it went 15, 15, no, 30, 30, no. Not enough because it was a tournament and they go 50, 50. And he goes, I'll do it. And and that's when he went into Japan. He beat everybody. Was that in pride that he fought in that one? 
It was Shudo. It was Shudo. Okay. Only two guy Japan. He fought. He fought in that, and then he he beat everybody. So then his price doubled because he beat everybody. So his price doubled, and he went into the next one. And then he beat everyone again. And then he said, "Okay, let's fight again." Uh, once he beat two tournaments in a row, he beat everybody. Then his price, boom, exploded. Now, I don't know the numbers a hundred percent for sure, but it went from like a hundred, hundred and a hundred to a mil and a mil, and then two mil and two mil or something like that. I don't know, but it was a considerable jump, and because of the money difference, um, Shudo no longer could, could sustain having him in a tournament because he his price went up as it should. You won two tournaments. You beat everyone in both your tournaments. Now you should have a prize fight. And it was perfect. That's the way it should work out. And you should make a million dollars doing a prize fight. And so it was a million and a million or whatever, whatever it was, something like that. Anyways, and sure enough, he beat him. So it was Takata. He beat Takata twice. He said, he just said, hey, you guys could pay me, but all I'm doing is schooling this guy. I'm, I'm teaching him. He's getting better, but he's never going to beat me. You guys keep paying me, and you think he's going to have another shot. That's why they gave him two chances. So they go, give it, and then they're like, okay, who's your best here? So they brought out a guy, um, Funaki. Do you know who Funaki was? Um, I did watch a lot of the, you know, the, the different Japanese martial arts back in the day, so probably by face, but the name doesn't ring a bell specifically. So Funaki, Funaki and Suzuki – were Gotch lineage catch wrestlers, and they started, those guys were the ones that started Pancrase. Okay. So there was a the pro element. The pro element was still involved in, in the early stages of, uh, of Pancrase. So it's a Libra guy is like a shoot, like a shooto guy or a shoot shooter because of striking the wrestling and then the ground and then the, the attention to leg locks. So you have shooto, you have rings, you have UWF, Pancrase, and then pride. So shooto at that time was, was pretty much the only one that had all real fights. So uh, what's the difference between a work? So you could, you could have a match. Sometimes they have a work. A work is where it's kind of predetermined. Like this guy's going to win. You put somebody over. It's called putting somebody over. And so that whole thing came from the pro wrestling background. He's going to put him over. Uh, so that's what they would say. And what would happen is some of these fights, they had rope, rope escape. Carl Gotch told Satoru Sayama, the founder of Shudo, Carl Gotch told him, he said, uh, Sayama said, I want to have a real fight. I want to make it professional. I want to have a real fight. I want to have striking. I want to have throwing. I want to have submission. And Carl Gott said, that will never go. It will never become popular. Pro wrestling, show wrestling is the way to go. That's, that's where people, they want to see you develop fans. It's exciting and all that stuff. And uh, so that's why Sayama said, well, it was kind of almost a dare. And then he started Shudo. 
1985. It was started in 82, 83, and then 85 was the first amateur. 84, 85 was the first amateur. 86, maybe. 80, 85, 86 was the first amateur fights. Shudo had the most fights of all leagues in the world. They had the most because they had them all the time. And a lot of the fighters from Shudo were all super technical. They were strikers. They were wrestlers, judokas, sambas, and they were grapplers. They had no jujitsu. They had no Brazilian jujitsu back then. I actually got accused of teaching the Japanese jujitsu. And I laughed. I said, why would I teach them what I'm using? I'm using Shudo because I needed to understand the attacks and the, the submissions from Shudo, which, is, which was predominant leg, leg attacks and neck cranks. But there was no jujitsu over there. So for me, the transition and positioning of, of uh, jujitsu helped me beat the Japanese. So you got you got five five leagues. You got Shudo, you got rings, you got UWF, you got Pancrase, then you have Pride. And and they all had matches that were predetermined. Uh, they had rope escapes, some predetermined. They'd have a bunch of real fights, and then they would have one that was fake. Or that wasn't real, or that was a shoot, or it was a work. Uh, and and the whole thing with these guys is they have fanfare. So all these, all these guys got fans and you got to keep going back to Japan. They love you win or lose. They love you. Shudo's mentality was different. It was small minded here. Here's a fighter. He come, they Shudo wanted to beat everybody to prove how powerful and strong Shudo was. They would invite the Dutch and Muay Thai the Thai boxers in to fight uh, wrestlers. They brought in these wrestlers to fight. They brought in uh, a judo guy. They brought in another submission wrestling league. Uh, they brought in another organization, Pancration, which was Matt Hume's guys. So they're, they're constantly bringing guys in to challenge, to beat, to pay them, and then never invite them back. And, and if you did that, like my friend Omar Boish, he's from Sweden. He said, hey, I want to fight in Japan. I said, make me a demo tape. He made me a demo tape. He said, where should I go? And I go, he goes, should I go to Shudo or Pancrase? And I said, well, if you fight in Shudo and you, and you do well, you'll be asked back. But if you fight in Japan and Shudo and you lose one time, you may never be asked back. So if you want to have a fight career, and go to Japan regularly, I'd choose Pancrase. Because if you fight in Pancrase and you lose, they'll have you back a month later. And in Shudo, you're only fighting two times, three times a year at the most. So I steered a lot of guys to Pancrase because Shudo was, again, it was very tough. You fight, you lose, you fight, you lose. They don't want you back. They've already proved you suck. That's what their objective is. You don't suck. You just lost. But uh, you know what I'm saying? In their mind, yeah. So another thing that I wanted to ask you, um, I think it's it's a really interesting perspective that you have because you know you've you've been in this for so long and seen the kind of evolution and or devolution depending on the perspective. But in strength and conditioning, in the levels of combat 
I've seen a kind of less is more element start to come out. So rather than, for example, you know, I, I trained in shootbox years ago and it was Fight Club. I mean, you know, I'd leave there with concussions and broken noses and perforated eardrums and then couldn't train for X amount of time because, you know, I mean, because of the, the ripple effect. What that I was see- the norm also. I'm sorry, say again. That was the norm. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and especially out of that camp. So what I've seen, you know, moving forward is is more and more discussion of lighter technical sparring, pad work, bag work, and saving that all out kind of, you know, fight for the cage, for the ring. So through your perspective, what have you seen as far as that level of contact um, versus what is there now? And then maybe, you know, are you seeing even more effectiveness from this less is more philosophy? So timing sparring is invaluable. Usually the guys that are new or that aren't very good are the ones that go really hard. The guys that are really good, you'd never know how good they were because they don't go that hard. And especially during training so or practice. But uh, timing sparring, just so you have your timing down, you could timing spar every day. You could timing spar for a half hour straight without getting tired. The second you start pushing yourself really hard and you bang hard, then everything changes. Your your critical thinking, your thought process, your reaction time, your emotions become involved, your ego steps in. So it is good to bang. Some people like to just uh, bang once a week. And then some people, they timing spar. So what we do is we break our stuff down. So we wrestle. We roll for submission. We do ground and pound. We do get-ups. We do cage work, uh, wall walking, getting up, getting, preventing the takedown, not allowing someone and getting back up. And then we do boxing, sparring, kickboxing, sparring, clinch sparring. We pull it apart to get better at each aspect, and then we put it back together. When you put it back together, the MMA sparring is for all-around timing, reaction, uh, development of your game, strategy and tactics, uh, your skill sets, uh, what you're strong at, what you're what you're weak at. But that's how you're technically going to get better. And it's very difficult to do that when you're banging hard every day. And also banging hard every day. We had we used to spar so hard that we had guys that wouldn't like. Uh, let's say well, so we had a few guys that would come in and they would complain that they're not sleeping very well or they don't sleep at all or they're only sleeping an hour or two. And that's overtraining. You're overtraining and you're also getting hit in the head too much. So you might have a concussion that's just like a reoccurring concussion that's preventing you from sleeping. And and then they tell me they have vertigo. And I said, you have a concussion. Um, and, and then the CTE, I don't even know you know, like, like what constitutes the, the name or, uh, or how you can even identify that you've got a traumatic brain injury, you know? Uh, and, and the thing is, is here, look at it like this. Uh, I had some friends that were in the stunt industry and they were getting ready for a film. And in order for them to get ready for the film, they had to do judo and Aikido every day. And they had to get slammed. They're stunt guys. So you got to get slammed over and over and over and over. When you get slammed on the mat like that, you get a concussion. It might be mild. 
but your body's not used to that impact where you're, you're landing on your back, you're landing on your side, but you're hitting the ground hard and you do it, you know, 30 to 50 times a day. That's a lot. It's the same thing. So the constant slamming, the constant head trauma, uh, like I said, you can timing spar, but there's uh, also something we call pressure testing. And that's a big secret. Our pressure testing. So if you got a fight two weeks out of your fight, you get pressure tested. It's extremely important because what we do is we put you in, let's say you got a three, five minute round fight. So sometimes we'll put you in for four or five minute rounds or six minute rounds we might change it to a so you just have an extra minute or just five minutes but you get a fresh person you get a fresh person every two minutes a minute and a half to two minutes you got a fresh person and you get three persons per round so in one round your five minute fight you got three guys back to back switch 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 and they each have your opponent's style so, okay, we're fighting a striker. The guy's notorious for his head kicks. So, you know, you get a, little, a couple guys come out and they grapple, but then you got a guy that all he's doing is just throwing the head kicks. So you get used to that. But the pressure test is kind of the secret to what's the secret to our success? What's the secret to my success uh, when I fought in Japan was the pressure test. I always had to pressure test a week uh a week before, not a week, but a week or two weeks before you have a hard pressure test. And it's, and that is something that I think that you could supplement the super hard banging for is with the hard pressure test. That doesn't mean you're getting your, your butt beat. It just means you've got a fresh guy. So when you spar around with one person, five minutes, you can gain momentum on that person because you might hit him in the liver. You might get a good shot off on him. And he's going to, his energy levels are going to slowly decrease. But when you get a fresh guy, when that guy gets tired, here comes a fresh guy and another fresh one. Uh, that, that's tough. And I think that would be a good supplement to the hard banging aspect. Absolutely. Now with you, as you said, you, you, you train people in, in the law enforcement community and the special operations community, but obviously a lot of actual professional fire, uh, excuse me, professional fires. Um, have you seen a common denominator in the kind of person that ends up being a very, very successful fighter? When I pose this to the SEAL community, for example, there's no physical shape or size, but there's definitely a kind of mindset that allows them not to ring the bell when so many people do through attrition. Everyone's different. You pick guys that are completely athletically in great shape and they train super weak their their uh work ethic is horrible because they're so naturally gifted then you get some guys that are kind of out of shape and uh all the they come in and you're like i don't know how far this guy and all of a sudden you go holy crap this guy's <laughs> he doesn't give up he shows up every day he's got a great attitude and he trains really hard because he wants to get better and he wants to change his body he wants to become more athletic so sometimes you get athletes that, that uh, just take it easy and they don't push themselves as much as they possibly can. So one of the secrets, I think, to, to find out how great you could be is by competing. And so when you're going to fight 
and you have off time, maybe go do a jujitsu tournament or a nogi tournament or a wrestling tournament or a judo tournament or a kickboxing match or maybe a boxing match. So you're constantly in the in the competition mindset. So you're pushing yourself, not just in class, but I'm talking where you're actually going against people that are that are not your peers and that are going to come after you. Now I had the Greg Jackson on the show. One of the comments that he made, and, I, and I've seen this, you know, as as a spectator watching it, um, you you have two types of people in, for example, the UFC. You have fighters, and then you have martial artists. And he had a, a lot of a lot of respect for people like Georges and Pierre, who obviously ended up being a great great fighter. But through the kind of martial journey, he had all the other elements of that too. What's your perspective on that? Of all the fighters that you've had around yourself. You're right. Uh, so a lot of guys are not martial artists. They've never learned martial arts. They don't know the the uh, respect factor. They just come in and they want to learn. They want to fight, and, and it's they just get really good at fighting. And I said, it's great that you guys get really good at fighting, and you can go in and learn and get better. I said, but in your off time, you actually need to learn a little bit more than just you know, putting the gloves on and banging because you're going to deal with people that are going to have tricks and skill sets that you do not have or know about or own, which are like tricks. So you want to become as great of an athlete as you possibly can by getting in shape, your strength, your conditioning, and then your technical prowess through through uh, learning martial arts. Uh, and then And then when it's, you know, when it's time for you to be in camp, you're the fighter, but then when you're not the fighter, you should be learning martial arts again. You should go back and become the student, take classes, sit in class silently, and, and don't say, I'm a fighter, I do. No, I'm a student, now I wanna learn, as, I, wanna, I wanna be a sponge and learn as much as possible. I think both aspects are important. And then you get some guys that are martial artists and they just can't turn it on and they don't want to compete. And then they can't deal with loss. So they don't compete just in case they might lose because they don't think they can handle it. Maybe their ego can't handle it. And some people have high opinions of themselves and they couldn't handle losing. And I have had that one too. So those are a few factors. Right. Now, what about the, the older athlete? So we talked about competition. Right now, I'm, I'm rehabbing um, basically my knees. And, and I found a new program by a guy called Ben Patrick that's working really, really well. But I'm having to kind of undo the injuries of being a firefighter, um, increase my mobility. So I'm in the jiu-jitsu gym now, and there's, there's a lot of talk of competition. It's, it's a competitive gym. And, you know, at, at the moment, I'm like, no, because I know my body and I know that I need to be a certain level, especially as I just got a blue belt. So I'm in a brand new bracket now at the very, very bottom of the bucket. Um, thank you. <laughs> so what is your perspective on older athletes? Like how how do they gate it down um, but still have that competitive element, you know, because I think one of the fear for me, I've had no problem losing. <laughs> Not at all. My ego is good with that. I just don't want to, you know, break my arm in the process or rip a shoulder um, with some, you know, uber enthusiastic UFC wannabe 18 year old that I'm pitted against. Uh, what I do is uh, when you get older, you have to be more selective with the people that you decide to roll with because you're in it for the for the longer haul, especially being older, 
So you, you don't want to end your career right away by just getting an injury from, a, again, a young athlete that's going to come after you. So you could either talk to people and say, I want to roll, but uh, I have to be careful. I have a couple injuries. But, but a lot of people do that. And then they go completely berserk and go oh, go crazy. Hey, let's roll light. Then you roll light and then they go crazy. And then they trick you and you're like, oh, hold on a second. That's not light. So I think being selective, I think being selective with your training partners, more selective than just grabbing someone randomly and rolling with them. And that's a big factor. You just have to be smarter with uh, uh, your training partners. And what about the competition element? Do you recommend that older athletes compete the same way as you would a younger, you know, not yet broken athlete? Yeah, what we do is we do, so we have a competition class. And for for the normal person, let's say blue, purple, blue and purple belts, they have to roll for 30, 30 straight minutes. You have a new person every five minutes. And again, you could be selective with who you're you're putting in there or who you're going up against. And then for brown and black belt, it's 40 minutes. It's 40 straight minutes of roll time. That's your, your competition level that you should be rolling with. So you're rolling for 40 straight minutes. Every five minutes, you got a new person and you got to try to go for 40 straight minutes. That's tough. That's a tough one. Or get a minute break, you know, take a minute break between each round, but, you know, get eight rounds in at five minutes. So you got eight fives or, or even five fives. I, I tell people, if you want to go in the competition class, just go in there and see if you can do 20 minutes. 20 minutes is four five minute rounds of rolling. Just start with that. See if you can do that. And if you can't do that, then you need to start running or swimming or biking. You need to get your cardio up, uh, and it's funny, I just saw this, I posted this thing, I sent it to my friends, and it was about this girl. She goes, if you're having any mental problems, go running. Because that way you'll figure out that you're completely um, physically out of shape, and you'll forget about your mind. You'll forget about all your problems. <laughs> Which is kind of true, because to me, running is moving meditation. I used to put a headset on, and I would hit the road. And I lived in a neighborhood of hills so i'd run up and down these hills all the time with a headset on and it was the nicest thing ever and the thing is is you can't cheat when you run i mean you could stop and you could walk you know you could stride slower but you can't cheat you really can't cheat like when you're hitting tie pads you could coast a little bit when you're sparring you can go really hard then you can just move around and defend so you can take your time when you're running well, tight pads, you can't really cheat, but you could coast a little bit and go a little lighter. As far as running, you can't cheat running, but it's moving meditation. And I think you can work through a lot of stuff with, with just your, uh, your mindset as you're running. I think it helps 100%. Uh, I used to swim. I used to rollerblade. I used to bike, and I used to run because I had a torn meniscus that I never fixed. I used to do all those. And uh, one of my training partners used to laugh at me because my knee would freeze at the two-mile mark. And he goes, you just can't run any farther than two miles. I go, no, my leg's actually freezing because my meniscus is 
is torn and never fix it. And it freezes up at about, it start my leg starts locking up at about two miles. So I said, there's other things that I could do that are just as valuable. And he said, like what? I go rollerblade. And he got mad at me. He goes rollerblade. And that's, that's easy. That, that there's no effort that goes into that. And I have speed skates and I would get down really low and I would sprint on my skates. It's a hard workout and it busts your legs and your butt. So rollerblading does it. And I realized the reason he said that was because he couldn't rollerblade. So he said, yeah, that's, if you can't run, uh, you're a puss. And I said, no, I'm going to rollerblade. I'm going to go to the pool. I'm going to do laps in the pool. I, I, even to my last fight, I, I swam right before my fight. I was doing wall-to-wall underground breath holds. So I would go from one wall to the other and make it back to the other wall, underwater uh, breath holds. And I'll tell you something. I was dieting because I had to lose 15 pounds in four days. And uh, I don't like to do it with the sauna. I run. I, I get on the road the first thing in the morning and I run. No matter what, I go out and run. I had a broken ankle. I taped my ankle. I ran three miles. And then I was at the pool doing laps in the pool. You swim, you do crawl strokes. Then you do leg uh, kicks with the board. And then you put a buoy between your legs. You do all your crawl strokes, uh, kickboard with the legs. And then after that, I would do breast strokes and crawl strokes from wall to wall. And then I do underwater, underwater wall to wall holds. And then I run in the pool. So I run for resistance wall to wall. I go forward, back, side, and so- side left, side right. The pool is amazing for, for uh, your body, especially when you're older. In fact, it helps your knees stay strong. So the, I, I really love that. And then also the Aerodyne. You can't ever beat an Aerodyne. Aerodyne bike is the best bike for fart licks and uh, sprints and you do 30, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off for five straight minutes. That's a good workout. It's a horrible workout. <laughs> Fart licks with that. Do you have an Aerodyne? We do, yeah. So I, I coach at a CrossFit gym, and they got several. We call it Satan's Chariot. Oh, exactly. <laughs> that thing's great. It and, is. you know, the design really hasn't changed for countless years. I mean, they've made it a little bit better now, but. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you can literally 60 seconds and, and you can be falling off the damn thing. So the, the all-over all body effect is, is mind-blowing, really. And the rowing machine, too. The Versa Climber is the hardest. That's why it's the least used piece of equipment in your gym. If you have a Versa Climber, it'll have dust on it. These guys, they don't want to use that thing. That's a, that's a tough one. But the rowing machine is just as hard, too. Absolutely. If you know how to use it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, basically, if you're doing it right, it's a, it's a, almost a clean every single time you're pulling. Guys were, were laughing at me, like, because I would, I would mix my cardio up. I would go, I would go on, uh, I do the 10. So I would jog on the treadmill, and then I'd run on the treadmill, and then I hit the bike. And there was two different types of bikes, one where you sat over and one where you sat back. So one was more for your legs and the other one was for your whole body. And then I get on the recumbent, the recumbent hand bike. Those things are great for boxing. Have you seen those? Yeah, yeah. They use them a lot in rehab and when people are hurt and it's, it's way right. of keeping them moving. 
but you don't need you should uh, fighters should use those because it's great for boxing it's like a speed bag but you have resistance so you have the recumbent and then and then you have uh whatever the versa climber the rowing machine so i would mix my cardio up and everyone would laugh at me and they go how come you don't just do 40 minutes of this i go i kind of get bored you'll hit i i for 40 minutes my biggest thing is fighting my brain as I'm on the treadmill running for 40 straight minutes, which is a hamster track. And if you do two miles on the treadmill, it's equivalent to one mile on the road. And people would argue with me and I said, go run a mile and see how you feel. And then go on the treadmill for two miles and see if it's, if it matches and it's almost the same. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes sense because, I mean, if you pick your legs up, the road's moving regardless. So you're really just trying to stay, you know, at pace with the belt rather than propelling yourself forward. That's right. And and one of my favorite exercises is called the 10-10-10 or 10 to the fourth power. So you put the um, treadmill at uh, inclination of 10, speed of 10, and then you jump on it and you sprint as fast as you can for 10 seconds. And then you jump off it. You take a 30 second break and then you jump on it. You do 10 of those. So 10 to the fourth power, uh, inclination of 10, speed of 10, run for 10 seconds and you do 10 sets. That Have you ever tried that one? No, but that sounds all, I mean, the, the different, um, kind of algorithms they have in CrossFit, you know, some of them are very, very short amount of time, but it's all intensity too, isn't it? I mean, if you're doing high, high intensity, you don't only, literally only need 10 seconds. I mean, think about sprinters. Right. But the, the biggest thing is that you stand on the side of the treadmill and you put your hands on the, on the handles, you know, on the, whatever the poles or the, what are they called? Yeah. Like the handrail. Yeah. The handrail. So you hold the handrail and then when you jump on, you jump on with your hands on the handrail. You don't jump on it because you go flying off. You end up so on you YouTube. Start running with your hands on that, and then you let it go and you run, and then you jump off. So you're not going to wipe out because as soon as I brought my friend to do the 10, 10, 10 to the fourth power, uh, he jumped on that thing, and I said, "Hey, listen, you got to hold the handrails, and then you drop yourself onto the speeding track, and then you." grab the handrails and lift yourself off. I go, don't jump off. And he went flying <laughs> like three times. And I go, you know, if you, if you don't grab the handrails, you're going to go flying. You're going to get hurt. He, he did it and he wiped out three times. And he said, I don't understand how you're not wiping out. I go, you grab the handrail, you drop yourself on. When you're about to be done, you put your hands on the handrail, you take your feet off. But yeah, 10 to the fourth power. That's one of my favorites. I can still do that to this day. Really? That's tough, but I, I love that. That's uh, I use that at the end of my workout. So when I go lift weights, then I do the 10 to the fourth power. Brilliant. Well, you talked about running being meditation, um, and that kind of is a good segue for I know something that we wanted to talk about. Transition out of the military, police, fire is uh, – well known to be a very challenging time you know we've identified as the cop the firefighter the soldier and if we haven't got a lot of things in place and another tribe to transition to um, it can be a struggle mentally you know it can really be be tough talk to me about fires whether they are uber successful or maybe not so successful they pour everything into 
that lifestyle. What do you see to uh, as far as the end of a, a fighter's kind of life cycle within the actual sport? You have to formulate your exit plan before you're exiting. Don't just go cold turkey and go, uh, now what? You should have an idea as you're, uh, I'm going to use an analogy like a relationship. Um, uh, I remember a long time ago when I would date a girl and uh, when you'd break up, she would never just break up with you. She would already have another guy in place. So she'd already had another guy that she already had planned on hooking up with before she ever got out of the relationship, which I found kind of weird, but it's, it's an exit strategy. And it, it's kind of a, uh, what do you call it? It makes you feel good or makes you feel comfortable. The cold turkey is the hardest, but if you have a formulation or a game plan, um, like I told Michael Bisbean, I said, you know, when he was fighting towards the end of his fight career, I said, you should really, really focus and look at the commentary stuff because uh, you've, you've entertained people for a long time and, and now you're no longer the spotlight of entertainment. So something like for, for you, something like movie stuff, acting, uh, I think acting would be good for you. Maybe some commercials and, uh, it would be a good idea that you work on your speaking skills so you could actually be a commentator in the sport that you love so much and made a statement at. And sure enough, he listened or yeah, he listened to what I said. You know, he's a great commentator. He's working all the time on, on uh, Fox and all the different ESPN and all the different ones that, that uh, the UFC's on. That's great. Right. Yeah. Well, he's a good yeah. example too, because I mean, he literally gave one of his eyes to the sport. Sure did. And that was the end. Uh, when the last time that I trained him, his eye was on the verge of being blind. And he could barely see shadows. And I was like, this is going to be like one of your last fights here with your eye that bad if it's consistently getting worse. So... Uh, again, I said, you should really, really focus. If you listen to me, it will help you tremendously, but really focus on your speaking skills, uh, your presentation, uh, and, and really work on your commentary stuff because uh, you'd be a great commentator for, for fights. I, I would listen to you. I would listen to your insight. And, and one of the biggest things is you can't be braggadocious and talk about yourself all the time. Oh, when I did this. But that does help because you were already a fighter that were, was in the mix, and people do like to hear that also. But, you know, he's a good commentator, and uh, he makes the sport exciting. Yeah, no, this has been some great, great ones that came out. Dan Hardy is another one, another English fighter that I think is very good. And, yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone they have you know, narrating, as it were, these days, outside of Joe Rogan and some of the, the old faces um, – it really kind of underlines and this is the same with us. Like we come out the fire service. It's like, well, what am I going to do now? All I know knew how to do was be a firefighter. It's like, well, you have such an incredible skill set. You just got to reinvent how to apply that to a new career. You got to reinvent yourself. Uh, another great commentator, Kenny Florian. Wow. He's like full blown professional commentator. Yeah. And that's, if there's ever a guy that, 
someone would pick on in a bar and realize that they fucked up royally is someone like Kenny Florian. I'm sure earlier in his career, before he got a little bit more cauliflowered, you know, he, he looked like the dude that worked at the library and one of the most dangerous men on the planet. Unassuming. And when you listen to him talk, you would never know that he was a fighter. No, that He's humility. Yeah, yeah. So I like that aspect. You know, Cormier's doing the same thing, but uh, that's kind of a thing. You know, um, I started commentating. I was going to do more commentating. Uh, I did. I actually commentated a fight in Brazil, and uh, I started doing more and more of that. I was actually supposed to commentate the the PFL, Professional Fight uh, – Oh, sorry, PSL, Professional Submission League. It was Rico Ciparelli's event. And then I got, as I was walking down to the mic, the mic got hijacked. And I didn't want to go in and say, hey, I was promised that I could commentate this. So it was, at, uh, at the time, it was Eddie. Uh, so it was Frank Frank Trigg kind of came in and, and started commentating. And then Eddie Bravo walked in. And he started commentating. Him and Frank were talking the whole time, and I was like, you know what? I'm not. I'm not going to try to butt in. And Enrico goes, "Hey, I. You told me that you were going to commentate." And I said, "But you got Frank and Eddie on the on the microphone, and they're happy and they're talking, and I'm not going to butt in, so I could just you know try to over commentate somebody." And that's when I kind of went, you know. And then, uh, so I had a deal. I talked to. Uh, HDNet fights with Mark Cuban. And after I was done fighting for HDNets, I said I was going to commentate. I said, I'll commentate the fight. And all of a sudden, same thing. Guess what happens? Uh, I thought, okay, I fought. I'm going to fight again, maybe. Uh, they, they may or may not have any more fights. I don't know if they want to again. Uh, anyways, uh, hey, maybe you, could, you should commentate. And sure enough, they go, oh, we got a commentator. I go, oh, you did? Who? And they go, Frank Trigg. And I go, oh. <laughs> so so then I was in Japan, and they're like, hey, would you be interested to commentate with, like, Matt Hume? I know Boss Rutten and Stephen Quadros were the commentators for Pride, and they had talked to me about commentating. <laughs> Same thing. I was like, they go, hey, would you be interested to commentate? And sure enough, they go, oh, don't worry, we got Frank Trigg. And I was like, oh okay, like, what's going on here? And I just said, you know what? I'm not supposed to commentate, because if I was, I'd be in the commentator spot. So I just said, you know what? Uh, no, I'm not going to commentate. And then it was a while ago, just a while ago, but they said, hey, Joe Rogan's contemplating leaving the UFC. Uh, would you be interested to commentate and take his spot? And I was like, that's a huge spot. To, I, I don't even know if I could ever do something like that. You know, his commentary spot is like, he's great. Uh, he, that would be the hardest shoes to fill. And then uh, what's um, from Bodog? Is it not Bodog, but uh, from Bellator? Is it Jimmy? Jimmy, what's Jimmy's last name? I'm trying to remember now. I remember I haven't watched Bellator for quite a while. So. I Jimmy. I forget his last name. Sorry. Anyways, he sounds a lot like Joe Rogan. Kind of looks like Joe Rogan. He shaved his head. Uh, uh, Jimmy was Dean Lister's fighter, and he fought James Wilkes in uh, King of the Cage. 
and uh, he became a commentator. Sounds a lot like Joe Rogan. Sometimes, like, I'll, I'm not watching the TV, but I'm listening. I'll listen to the fights. And when he's talking, I'm like, is that Joe Rogan? I'm, he's on Peloton. But it's not. But anyways, uh, that's that would be a tough shoe to fill. Uh, Joe Rogan's event on the UFC because he knows so much about each fighter and each camp. And, you know, that, that takes a lot of work. Yeah. Well, Joe's done such an amazing job. He, I mean, one of his... His podcast is one of the ones that I listened to that really kind of sent me down this road as well. But where he is now and the the voice and the platform that he has is kind of a voice of reason, you know, amongst a lot of things, but especially this last year or so. Um, it's mind-blowing that a, a stand-up comedian from Boston is now, you know, this – this this voice that so many people in the U.S. not only are listening to him specifically, but he's getting all these great minds, is having great conversations, and therefore getting people to really question a lot of things. So, I mean that that man's genesis is mind blowing to watch. Well, he had that TV show. Did you see his TV show? Was it the 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 Fear Factor one or the Man Show? Was another one he was uh, on? Question question everything or Joe Rogan questions everything or something like that. Oh no, I didn't see that one. Uh, so he, he ended up going in and so he would go check out places like harp and, uh, a lot of places where there's conspiracies and he would go in and try to debunk it, you know, area 51. And I don't know if he ever did that, but you know, I saw the harp one and I thought it was really great. And I was like, that would be, that's good. But I think what happens when you get involved with, with, uh, exposing conspiracies i think you get phone calls and they're like hey hey i saw your show yeah you can't talk about stuff like that you know uh um is your address uh so and so uh <laughs> don't you reside there with your wife and your two kids uh, uh jason and emily and you're like uh okay so i'm wondering if, if something like that could have could have happened, you know? Yeah, well, I know. I, mean, I think even Spotify, if I'm not mistaken, after he signed exclusively with them, I think several of his episodes went away. They, they decided that they weren't, you know, appropriate, quote unquote. So that's the problem when, you know, the, the bigger you get and the more uh, corporate elements you allow into your life, sadly, the, the less of a, a platform you really have because you're relying now on, you know, you've, you've kind of, sold your your source your your nucleus to another entity so now in a way they're kind of controlling you to a point uh that's uh jealousy and uh you know sometimes they want to shut you down because you're in direct opposition yeah exactly or you know some of the topics you've discussed are some of the very companies that are funding the platform that you're on which is a very difficult place to be then uh it was jimmy smith uh, how could I forget Jimmy Smith? That's his last name. Jimmy Smith's a commentator for Bellator. It was uh, Mike Goldberg, uh, Mauro Ronaldo, Jimmy Smith, and, and Dominic Cruz. Yeah, Dominic's actually someone who's supposed to be coming on. Now, I had a couple of his uh, his fellow teammates from a thing called Deep End Fitness, and I'm hoping to get him on soon. He's, he was an exciting fighter to watch uh, with his footwork. I, I'm glad that he that he kind of patented his uh, style and then he sold, um, he's selling 
like downloads on how to do his footwork, which I think is great because that's to me, like the epitome of boxing is great footwork. When I was in golden gloves, we had this guy, his name was Pat Smith. And he was, uh, he was, uh, a little Mexican guy in Minnesota that came in and would, was just kicking the shit out of everybody. And then we had this other guy from Minneapolis come in and he was Navajo Indian. He came in and he looked a lot like Pat and they went toe to toe in the ring and he belittled Pat Smith. Pat, Pat was our local, our local hero in Golden Gloves. And this guy came in and just was all over him. And I was like, wow. And then this guy said, that's how you see a difference in pedigree. And I, I remember exclusively watching them spar. And I said, what makes this guy so much better than Pat? I'm watching him move. And then someone goes, look at his feet. I just looked down. I just stared at his feet. And I was like, that's it. It's his footwork. His footwork is so much better than Pat's. Pat was step, slide, step, step, slide, step, slide, push, step, push, step. And this guy was cross, step, pivoting. Uh, he just had all his movements down. He was circling, angling, stepping off to the left and the right, and circle stepping out, uh, using the female triangle and the lateral triangle. And then he turned sideways. And just his movement was so uh, far advanced. And uh, after he was done sparring, I said, well, that was amazing. Um, can I ask you something? He goes, yeah, I go, your footwork is so amazing. I mean, Pat could barely touch you. And he goes, I said, well, how, how do you get your footwork that good? He goes, I jump rope for 30 minutes every day and I shadow box. And I go, so he goes, so jump rope every day and shadow box. And so I started jumping rope for 30 minutes every day and shadow boxing. And it was funny because when I was training at the Inasano Academy, I would take night classes. And while I'm taking night classes, people would come in and watch the night classes. And they had three people come up to me and they said, you could tell that when you're training with people that you're the fighter and they're not, the person you're training with isn't a fighter. And I go, well, how's that? They go, you're on your toes and you're floating around on the ground and you're moving and you're in and out. And, and uh, circling, and and these people are flat-footed, dragging their cement blocks around on the floor. And I said, "Oh yeah, I used to jump jump a lot of rope and shadow box a lot." But it came. I forgot. It came from this. I was in eighth or ninth grade, and this kid that came in, this little Indian kid from from uh, downtown Minneapolis, comes in and just belittled our champion. It was just. Uh, eye-opening you know it's funny because i still remember my my boxing practices from eighth grade isn't that crazy i remember all the exercises the calisthenics and if you if you weren't very good or if you weren't like a hopeful you had to do calisthenics the whole time but they would walk in they go you come on in here put these gloves on jump in the ring and they'd throw you in the ring and you get to box and spar and that happened uh to me and my friend used to, my best friend and I were training at the time and he'd get so mad that they would call me out of practice to spar just to box. And, I, and they go, you have a good future. You should, uh, you should consider spar, um, competing. So I did. And then I realized that my brow bones 
were sharper than everybody else's. So I was easily cut. So I get cut almost every sparring session. I get cut. And then, uh, so it, it taught me how to move my head. And then the wall survival drill that helped tremendously, but I didn't really learn the wall survival drill until I trained with Tim Tackett in his garage. And was that to, and, to stop you backing up the whole time? Um, yeah, the, the wall survival, it just pre- prevents guys from light, putting their hands on my face. And this guy said, hey, if you value the way your face looks, learn how to move your head. And then my, my coach goes, you have a long face, so you need to really learn to get your head off center line. He said, so every time you punch, your pinky's high like this, and then your head's on one in one quadrant and your hand's on the other. So I put a cross on my mirror. And I would put one head, my head on one side, and then I'd put my punch on the other. So I used to practice moving my head and overhanding and uppercutting. So my head was never on center line the whole time. And then the other is I put an X on the cross, so I have an asterisk. And those are all your punching angles that you hit. So if you put an asterisk on your wall, uh, that is, or on your on your mirror or your wall, those are all your head movements and your punching where your head's here and you're punching. So get your head and and all the different angles. Then what you do is you take an asterisk and you put it on the floor and that's your footwork. We used to call it Leo's six pattern. Leo Gahi, a famous stick fighter, had the female triangle, the lateral, and then the male triangle. And then you do the star, it's called a star pattern on the floor. But then I added uh, the forward and back in there. So it's eight movements. So it's really good for your footwork. And then you do the same asterisks on the wall and that's your punching patterns. That was the easiest way for us to train Brock Lesnar to put the asterisks on the floor and the asterisks on the wall. Now, was that again, because of the wrestling background, he had a very kind of linear element to his footwork prior to that? Yeah, you have to get off the center line and get out of going forward and back and start to add the angles and the circles. And the pivots, and I think that was uh, one one aspect that really helped him out a lot with that. Beautiful. Well, I'm sure people listening are fascinated by your journey through the martial arts. Obviously, the stunt stunt world is another interesting thing, especially for me being in it too. Um, but you have an entire library, obviously, of your work. Um, tell me about combat submission wrestling, and then where can people access all of that online? So. When I was training, I had won the belts of Japan. I had two belts, and I wasn't really able to certify or qualify anyone. I wasn't able to give any any ranking in Shudo whatsoever until I retired from fighting. He said, oh, now you can promote Shudo. And I go, well, it's kind of late. And at the same time, I was a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, and I never, I had my blue belt for nearly 17 years, uh, 16 years, six, 16 plus. And I wasn't able to promote anyone in jujitsu. And so I said, all I said is, all I want to do is have good training partners and uh, people that I can train with so I can get ready for my fights. I go, I don't care about any rank and anything that doesn't matter to me. What matters is if I get my ass kicked in my fight, that matters to me. So, I want to train as hard as I can. I want the best coaches in the world, and I just want to train super hard. I don't care about a rank. 
Well, when you're starting to get older, what's your exit plan out of fighting? Often teaching. You got to get your rank. Someone goes, hey, uh, so you have to have a rank in something. So that never concerned me until I was getting towards the end of my fighting. I was like, uh, you know what? I should probably go start get my rank and stuff and make it a big, a better, bigger deal. Cause I was never a paper chaser or a belt chaser. I just, all I wanted was a skill and good training partners. I don't care about anything else. I don't need an award. My award was not, not losing my fight. That was my award. And if you lose a fight, you lose a fight. If, if your fight stays a loss, if you're not learning from your fight, you're either fighting and winning or fighting and learning, not fighting and losing. There's a big difference. You have to learn from every situation. I got armbarred by Carlos Newton. I'd never been armbarred. Even when we're rolling, I'd never been uh, armbarred from the guard. I've always stacked and passed and ripped my arm out. And he spun under me and he hit a helicopter and spun under me and I landed on my head. And, uh, after that fight, I had five guys teach me armbar escapes. They, I said, what's your favorite armbar escape from the guard? I had uh, a couple wrestlers. I had judo guys. I had jiu-jitsu guys. And everyone taught me something different. So I learned like probably five or six different ways to prevent the armbar when you're stacking somebody, how to get out of it. Everyone had a different method. So that was interesting. And then... Uh, what was the other one? Just getting taken down. All the counters to double legs. What are the, how, how do you counter a double leg? And this guy said, hey, are you going to do the C-Lot seminar this weekend? I go, uh, no, I've got a fight coming up. and My opponent's a tough wrestler, and I have to learn how to stop his double leg or his shot. So my whole weekend is going to be spent countering double legs. The guy goes, are you saying that C-Lot doesn't work? And I go, Never said the C-Lot doesn't work, but it doesn't work for me This uh, in two weeks when I'm in a cage. And he goes, so you're saying C-Lot doesn't work. And I go, it's not for me right now. That's all he said. And then he turned around and he told Guru Dan in Asano that I said that C-Lot, Eric Paulson said that C-Lot doesn't work. No, you took it out of context. I said, I got to fight. I'm fighting a wrestler. I don't need to worry about a Puder Kapal and a Kenjit Sequel right now. I need to learn and worry about a double leg tackle. Once a guy throws a bomb at my head or I go to hit him back, he's gonna shoot on me. I have to have a good counter. So every time every time I got ready for a fight, I had to learn each person's skill set, what they were good at, and try to get good at what they were learn or what they were good at to learn how to defend against that. Such as triangles or arm bars or ankle locks. That was the big thing. Someone said, hey, Eric Paulson's really good at leg locks. Uh, actually, I'm better at leg defense than I am at leg locks because I only learned the leg locks, so I learned how to defend all of them because all the guys in Japan were hunting the legs. So I never got leg lock from any of those leg lock specialists because I was so good at defending the legs. That's one thing. So it's all a learning process. Everything's all about learning. Every time you fight, you're learning something about yourself. You're learning something about your opponent new skills, new counters, new ways to train, or new ways not to train. So you had you you were you were seeking the rank. You obviously prior to that you were preparing for fights and you were 
going to the greatest minds to figure out that particular opponent. But now you're kind of you're on your own exit path. Um, when did you pull all that together to create your own system and start teaching? Like 90, 95. Um, so I was uh, I, I was teaching a seminar uh, for fighting. Someone said, "Hey, can you come and teach Trudo?" And I said, "Yeah, but I'm not allowed to rank, but I could I can do it." So um, Mrs. Inosanto, uh, I was trained at the Inosanto Academy and I was transitioning from Hickson school to the Machados because, uh, Higgin came in and asked me, how's your jujitsu? I said, non-existent. Let me ask my brothers if it's okay that we train you. So then I competed for them in 96 in the Pan Ams, uh, and I won a gold medal. And then I still never got promoted after that. And I just said, you know what? I'm not after a belt. I'm after training partners. And I guess they believe me because nobody ever ranked me after that. And I didn't care. I, like I said, I, cause all I wanted was good training guys. I wanted to be good on the ground. I wanted good training partners and I needed people that I could pressure test with to get ready for all my upcoming matches. So I was traveling, uh, fighting, assisting Guru Dan and Asana doing seminars. And then I had seminars. I had seminars that I was teaching on Shudo, but guys were saying, hey, do you, uh, is there any way, do you have any form or uh, you have an association or anything that we could get hooked up with to get more video footage and uh, to learn more? of the stuff that you're teaching. And uh, I said, well, not yet, but I'm working on something. So I originally called it combat, combat grappling, combat grappling. And so somebody said, what, well, what, what are you after? And I said, well, it's no gi grappling. And the no gi grappling is a compilation of stuff, but it's kind of like right now it's more like catch wrestling and uh uh striking so that's what shudo is it's catch wrestling and striking but i was also training in jiu-jitsu since 1986 so i wasn't allowed to rank anyone in jiu-jitsu so so i was like okay well what i'll do is i'll just do I'll create a hybrid system and all the guys that i train which this will make us different is all the guys i train We'll all be getting ready for competitions. Everyone that I'm going to train at that time, they all wanted to compete. They're like, Hey, we want to be like you. We want to compete. And I said, okay, well, there's grappling tournaments left and right now. You guys can compete in those. And there's uh, kickboxing or Muay Thai tournaments all the time. And then there's, uh, there's MMA fights that you guys could do. So, so we'll train you guys. We'll get you guys good. Uh, we'll train you as an athlete, teach you, a bunch of stuff, get you good at wrestling, get you good at takedowns and get you good on the ground. And then we'll add the striking and the takedowns. And so you guys will have a system. So it's a catch wrestler. You guys will all be catch wrestlers that, that fight. And that will make everything different. So that's what we did. So that's how it started. It was kind of a hybrid. So um, I told all my guys, I said, Hey, if you haven't found a good jujitsu school, you should all find a good jujitsu school around your area and join so you guys can all learn jujitsu. And 
I didn't care. I, I didn't say so you could get your belt. I said so you could learn jiu-jitsu. So your jiu-jitsu will help you with your defense, with your transitions. And then the catch wrestling will help you with your wrestling and your attacks. You put them together, that's a pretty good system because you have aggressive attacks, controls, riding, takedowns, scrambles. And then on the ground, you have the positioning, the controls, the, the transitioning, and the defense that escapes. So there we go. And that's kind of how combat submission wrestling came about. So when I was in Japan, they have combat wrestling. Combat wrestling was uh, Kaguchi started this league. It was called combat wrestling. And, and most of the catch wrestlers or the, the fighters in Japan, uh, when they didn't fight, they did, sub they did submission wrestling. They did uh, combat wrestling tournaments because it's it was uh, basically shudo without the striking. So it was just takedown to submission, but all the submissions from shudo. So combat combat wrestling. So I came back and I said, "Hey, I like the combat wrestling. I'm not gonna I'm gonna do something similar, but make it different." And they said, "What is it?" I go combat submission wrestling. And they said, well, what's different about that? I said, what's different is the fact that you guys will all learn to be wrestlers and judo, sambo, and wrestling for your takedowns. Uh, on the ground, you have all your attacks from catch wrestling. And then, and then you'll learn jiu-jitsu also as part of, as part of the, the defense. And then you guys will also compete in jiu-jitsu tournaments if you can, and you will compete in grappling tournaments. And then you guys will also fight. All you guys will fight. You have to, you have to have the combative aspect of the grappling, which is fighting, which is ground and pound or, or punching, kicking, takedown and grappling. If you guys have that aspect, then you guys are like more complete fighters. So let's change it. And let's add some weapons. Let's put some weapons in it, too. So now you guys got Kali. So you guys could stick fight. You're good at takedowns. So we'll add the takedowns with the stick fighting and the ground grappling with the ground and pound. So that's that aspect. So now you can fight with a weapon. Or you could go just straight uh, MMA style. Punching, kicking, throwing, submission, shooto, or submission wrestling. Or if you want to put a gi on, you can do judo, sambo, or jujitsu. And they're like, hey, good idea. So that's, and I said, that's very JKD of the grappling or the fighting, which is just a continuation, which is more athletically inclined. It's not so much of a technical aspect as it is uh, athletic and sport-like. Because all we did is we sparred and we rolled every day. That was, that was par for the course. We would do takedowns, we would do boxing, we would do kickboxing, we would do shoot boxing, we would do MMA, we would do ground and pound, clinching, ground and pound, and then we would just do clinching to takedown to submission wrestling. That was it. That's how it came about. Beautiful. So t tell, talk to me about what's there today. So people listening, if they want to access you know, some of your training, um, are there places where they can actually physically learn? Is there online content? 
Come. So we created the CSW Association, Combat Submission Wrestling Association. We have approximately 150 members that are uh, flying our flag uh, and running our programs through their schools. And we have a core three program, which is, which is uh, submission wrestling, the CSW submission wrestling levels one through 10. There's one through five, which is the five basic positions, crossbody, closed guard, kneeling, back position, and mount. And then we have the secondary, which is six through 10, which is half guard, side half guard, uh, butterfly guard, X guard, uh, uh, half guard, side half guard, I already said that, stretch guard. Then we go into uh, Kazakatami, Kazuri Kazakatami, north and south. And we address all the secondary positions. That's six through 10. And then a combination of all of it is levels one through 10. So that's, that's the ground grappling. Uh, there's throws in there also. It's part of a curriculum. Then we created the STX program, which was the Inosanto blend of kickboxing, which had to do with boxing, Thai boxing, Shudo, Junfan kickboxing, and then I added Taekwondo or Kyonkashin Karate. It's all part of the, the kickboxing curriculum. So we have levels five through 10. I'm sorry. Uh, one through five and five, uh, five through 10 is going to where we just talked about it. We're deciding that we're going to come out with five through 10 will be shoot boxing. So that will be punching, kicking and throwing. So shoot boxing is uh, kickboxing with throws. And you can also hit standing chokes and neck cranks. That's shoot boxing. And that's fun. Uh, the hardest workout I ever did was shoot boxing. Because you go punch and you take your partner down and you got to get up. And you just got to keep kickboxing and then you keep taking each other down. So we used to shoot box in the park. And it was funny because Mario Van Peoples used to watch us. We we're down in the Marina Del Rey uh, or Playa Del Rey. And, and uh, James Evans, Nicole from from London and Matt Chapman and, and uh, uh, some of the guys like uh, David Lee. David Lee came out, Rick Young. And uh, some of these guys came out to train. And we would just sit in the park and spar. Um, and uh, we, it was just regular. We, and we punch. We would punch. We'd kick. We'd do kickboxing. And then we'd do shootboxing. And then we'd do MMA. And then ground and pound and just grappling. And you end up just grappling in the end. But the ground and pound was fun, too. You know, because uh, it's real. And I just thought, you know, if you're going to add reality to your to your grappling you have to add striking so uh once every two weeks we put mma gloves on in our jiu-jitsu class and we make them uh strike because you get so used to sport jiu-jitsu that you do positions and sweeps and your face is wide open to get punched so that's not great for the street once you start addressing the the striking aspect on the ground then it's it's better for self-defense. Absolutely. Well, for people listening, where can they find CSW? Um, just ericpaulson.com. And uh, we also have an MMA program that we're finishing up. So we have the, the, the Nogi CSW 1 through 10. And again, we're, we're adding more to that too. It's constantly growing and changing. 
then then we have the STX kickboxing, and we added the shootboxing, so that's going to be a part of that. And then we have uh, the MMA program, which is punching, kicking, throwing, and submission. That's a very diverse program. Then I just added a jiu-jitsu program uh, because a lot of the guys were training jiu-jitsu and they quit training with their their trainer. They Like they were at a school for a while and they quit or they moved and they don't have guys. So, so that was another thing. My whole jiu-jitsu program wasn't to create it my own jiu-jitsu, it was to let my guys continue in their jiu-jitsu training, some of the guys that lost their teachers, uh, so they could continue their education and, and get ranked, get their ranking in jiu-jitsu because they're having a school. And, and right now, amazingly, um, my school used to be all no-gi and kickboxing and MMA, and those were the most popular programs in my school. And it's done a 180, and it's all uh, jiu my jujitsu program is my biggest program in my school now. And everyone wants to put a gi on. I think everyone just wants to get a belt or something. I don't know. But, hey, to each his own. And uh, for a school, it helps with the retention because when you start the jujitsu program, it's a 10-year program to get your black belt. I mean, for some reason, for a lot of guys, it might be a lot faster than that you know, four years or five years, but uh, on the average in a Nogi grappling program that people would only last for two years or three years at the most in the Nogi, but with the Gi, they last for five to 10 years. So it's elongated the history of my students. And then you have the lifers, the guys that will always be around, you know, till they die. But those are the, those are the hard ones to find, the lifers. But I do have guys that have been with me for 30, 30 some years. You know, they still are around and they're teaching. And and the thing is, is when you belt people, it empowers them also. But what, what I don't like is uh, I used to train at the Machados and I, I would see a guy get his black belt and then suddenly just leave the school and go open his own school right down the road. And the black belt was, was a reason for someone to, to just go open their own school. Hey, here's a license for you to go open a school right down the road from your teacher. And I, th I thought that was kind of odd. I, I didn't really care for that. So I like for me, I never wanted to have a school, but I had a lot of guys I was training for fights. So I had a club. The club's different than a school. I just had a group of guys, and we all competed, and we trained all the time. And I was training other pro fighters that were getting ready for fights, and all my guys wanted to spar and, and train with those guys. And then suddenly I started branching out, and I go, hey, would you guys be interested to do a, a gi grappling class? And they go, I don't know. Let's try it. And then all of a sudden it just blew up. Hey, do you guys want to do a – uh, no gi grappling, like a cat trussing or a submission wrestling class. Oh, yeah. Oh, let's try it. Blew up. You guys, we're going to do a kickboxing class. Uh, one of the classes is going to be all pads to heavy bags and drilling, and then the other is going to be all sparring. Let's do it. Boom. That, that took off. Uh, MMA, I only train MMA for fighters. I don't teach normal people MMA. I used to, but on seminars I do because I've actually formatted MMA 
to the point where you're a normal mom and pop, you're a normal nine to five person and you can learn how to fight and utilize all the MMA stuff without having to spar with everybody and get your face punched in every day. So there's a lot of drills that, that uh, we put together for, for that type of training. Great training too, because it's kickboxing and throwing and takedowns and ground and pound and submission. And it's fun to learn. So for some people, it's not fun to fight though. And for others, they want to fight. And I said, okay, well, if you want to fight, you have to give us five days a week. Oh, I can't do that. Well, then you're not going to fight. You're not going to fight for us. There's a UFC down the road, UFC gym down the road that you could go to, and they'll train you. And if you think you want to be a fighter and you want to train twice a week, you're not going to really go anywhere. You know, you'll fight in a little, a bunch of little shows around the area, but you're never going to make it to a big league training two or three days a week. You have to do five days a week. I let my guys off the hook by training three days a week. But nobody really, really aspired to go to the big leagues. And if they did, they started training five or six days a week. Uh, I train five or six days a week for my fights. I always train five, at least five days a week and twice a day, sometimes three times a day, because I would do my morning workout. I would I would lift lift weights in the day and run. I always either ran or lifted weights in the day or swam, and then I had my night workout. My morning workout was more kickboxing and shootboxing and pads. My day workout was lifting weights or running. And then my night workout was wrestling and, and uh, submission. But I trained five days a week, so I, I couldn't understand as a coach how I got guys coming in two or three days a week and not doing five days a week. You know, even four days a week to me wasn't enough. So what are you doing in three extra? What, where are you those three extra days? How come you're not doing anything? Oh, I'm running. Oh, okay. Do you have a videotape of that? Can you uh, send me your video? Show me your video of you running. Oh, I don't videotape it. Well, then I don't believe you. You know, so that's the thing. So I, I made everyone run before practice. I said, bring your shoes. You're running. You guys are hitting two miles or three miles before practice. It's required. That way, everyone was, I was assured that everyone was running. Just crazy. You know, things change. And, and the, the funny thing is I tried to demand as much out of people as I could as a coach. And then now the guys are even demanded more than what I was demanding. So things change. Everyone's different. And uh, I, I really enjoy teaching normal people and now training more coaches and instructors than fighters. Uh, I'll leave the training fighters to the younger guys. Now that I'm older, I'd rather teach and train instructors so you could pass on the knowledge and be a good coach or teacher. That's what's important. And then I'm also working on a self-defense program, and I'm also implementing this year uh, Shudo. I'm going to start testing people for Shudo because I was given permission when I retired to do so, and I kind of tucked it away and said, I don't want to do it. But now that Shudo's kind of ended in Japan, there was some problems with the association, the organization, and some of the members. And I said, well, it was such a, a good MMA program that I would like to continue to test people in the rankings of Shudo 
so they can continue to uh, keep the art alive because otherwise it's going to die. So I, I like that aspect. That's cool. Just gives you ties to Japan. Absolutely. Well, Eric, I just want to say thank you. It's been a, an amazing conversation. I mean, from the early, early days, the the introduction to the Jeet Kune Do world, the, the stunt stuff, you know, your perspective as a coach, as a fighter. Um, it's been you know, an amazing conversation. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. My pleasure. And I, I was very fortunate. My All my training partners, if they didn't go into martial arts or fighting, most of them are all doing movies. And they're all super successful in movies right now. I think the training that we got was such high level. And then also the amount of time and effort you put into your training, it, it just bled over into, into the uh, movie world. So all my training partners uh, from 8711, Damon Carl, uh, Chad Stahelski, Jeff Amata, Rich Citroni, uh, J.J. Perry, Jonathan Eusebio, Justin Williams, all these guys are doing full-time stunts. Uh, they're, they're working on tons of movies right now and uh, on all different aspects. You've got the Marvel group and then you got the DC comic group and my friends are doing both. And then the Matrix and John Wick and Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman and, and the Avengers and all those shows. Uh, and then uh, uh, Deadpool, these guys are all getting a lot of great movie parts. And, and I'm really happy to see my friends be successful in the movie industry. And it's kind of cool to say that I knew all these guys and used to train with all of them. I just chose the martial arts uh, avenue. And those guys went into the entertainment industry. Uh, someone asked me if I regretted it. And I said, no, because I think everyone's path is different. Uh, I love I love changing people's lives with martial arts, you know, uh, and not everything's all about money, you know, because I think in the end, when you have all the money that you can get, it's still not going to make you content in your heart and uh, content and fulfillment has to come with you being joyous and happy and and. Uh, I guess, content with with the path that you chose and what you're doing. The one thing I did like about the stunts was hanging out with all my friends all the time. You know, it was like you're on a movie set and I'm just sitting there telling jokes and goofing off the whole time. I'm like, man, I can't believe we get paid for this. You know, you could get a little bit of work and, and then you're at the craft service table the whole time, just filling your pockets full of granola bars and uh, M&Ms. And no, I'm kidding. I don't. But my friends, <laughs> my friends said, whatever you don't make, uh, in the movie, when it, when you're working on the movie, whatever you don't make, eat and craft service. So eat the difference. So anyways, yeah, I, I really miss that aspect. I love the martial arts. I miss my friends, but I'm happy that everyone's successful and uh, doing well. Mm -hmm.